his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Somewhere deep in the bowels of the city, a reckless pack of depraved hipsters prepares to wage war on traditional family values. You got your bank, your church, your malls, your cops, your guns, your righteous gold, your corporate loot, your fiscal balls. I can dig it. I can dig it. Do the pea soup enemas come before or after the rats are released? Um, uh, the is white, my nose is brown. I got a condo overlooking the town. When opportunity knocks, I can hear from locks. I was soon to come out here the school of hard knocks. I'm a man of renown. There's no business in town. They don't court me. Satan's siren call set to a lurid, robbing backbeat. I can read your vow with one purgative howl. I'm a bourgeois bourgeois. I'm a la-de-noodle. I'm a rudo-rudo in the school I'll squirm and see the self-righteous right-wing bigots fan the flames of the culture war with their pompous, high-found, moralizing, and insipid state-sanctioned art. Queen's a crumb of justice, and I'm giddy for that mocking tick, tick, ticking of the endless final round. Witness hordes of self-loathing bohemian artists as they wallow in their pathetic self-flagellation while teetering on the brink of bathos. Who am I? can't imagine your skin ever rotting. Lufthang's a mighty thing at the crack of doom. It's a big long pipe bomb with a pink boom. It's a big strut with a little boy waddle. It's a kind of love thing with the full down throttle. Until all forms of art are subsidized. Until the workers run the factories. Until condoms are dispensed with crayons. Until every flag comes with its own match. Until the sacred school prayer is replaced with a minute of angst and foreboding. Existo, a movie, nay, a film. So saucy, so reckless, it dares to call itself a musical. If you have to go out and you see art, do not, I repeat, do not try to interpret it yourself. Call 911 and let the art squad defuse it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Skiz Sizzik. I am the Cosmic Dowser and I hold in my hand the ultimate divining rod. 
Also with us this week is Mr. Scott Kalanico. Hello, everyone. Was was that a quote from the movie that Skiz just did? No. This week we are looking at the 1999 film Existo from filmmaker Coke Sams, co-written by Sams and Bruce Arnston, who stars as the titular living legend of the underground art scene. The film is set in a world where freedom-loving folks have tucked the country into a bed of family values where they've snuggled up to corporate ideals, just as God intended. But wouldn't you know that rabble-rouser Existo and his band of performance artists threaten the status quo. Existo isn't one of the easiest movies to see, but if you want to check it out before listening to this discussion, it's out on YouTube, and it's embedded into the posting for this episode at projection-boot.com. We're going to be getting into some spoilers, so I'd encourage you to check out the film first and come back. We will still be here unless the show has been outlawed before then. Skiz, when was the first time you saw Existo, and what did you think? I think it was... uh... 98 or 99 i can't remember i was working as a projectionist at the atlanta film festival one of my shifts uh, was scheduled to end early and genevieve mcgillicuddy was the festival director that year and i asked her hey it seems like i've got an early night and she said that's because when you're done you need to get over to this other theater and watch this movie existo and all she told me was it's the people that did all the the earnest movies but don't let that scare you away i programmed this because I think you're going to love it. And I went and I loved it. I, I could not believe it. I came home from Atlanta telling everybody about this film. I, I was trying to get it to my festival, Micro Cinefest, and uh, I couldn't get anybody from the film to call me back. Finally, I think it was Clark Gallivan, one of the producers, called me back. And I got the impression they made this film for the fun of it, a bunch of friends getting together, making a movie that make themselves laugh. They expected more of a response. They didn't get it. So they're just kind of kind of put it on a shelf and write it off as a loss. And I said, well, before you do that, let me show it one last time at my festival because I think you just haven't found the right audience. So we showed it. It won awards. Uh, our press release went out. They immediately started getting invited to a bunch of other festivals. And the next thing you know, people are asking me if I've heard of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Existo well. How about you, Scott? I, it seems like this might have been a recent watch for you. Yeah, I'm, I actually just watched it a couple hours ago. I think this is probably – I know about it through Micro Cinefest. I think I probably read it in some of the um, the programs or whatnot. And I guess this is like kind of like I've never seen – I only know of Black Shampoo through Mike. So this is kind of like Skiz's version of Black Shampoo, I guess maybe. It's just like I've ne- I've heard of it and I kind of knew it was about there, but I've never actually watched it. Uh, so I guess I'd, I've heard about it since probably about the same time as Skiz, but I've never gotten around to seeing it. Skiz, when did you show this at MicroCineFest? Was that 99? I think it was 99, yeah. I seem to remember that uh, – yeah, that 99 makes sense because we – it ended up coming back to Baltimore for a theatrical run and Bruce Arnson and Coke Sams came with it. And I remember them telling me that it had been rejected by all the dance fests in Park City, Utah that previous year, Sundance and Slamdance, and there were several others at the time. And I also remember you know, being out there that year and thinking I didn't see any American films that year that I loved as much as this one. And it just really kind of angered me that that had been rejected, that, that, that Park City hadn't gotten behind this film. This seems like it was ready-made for Slamdance. Yeah, <laughs> I would think. This is, I saw this at the Micro Cinefest, so it must have been 99. I imagine I was on the jury because I was kind of like the perpetual jury member for a long time. So I loved it. Uh, if I wasn't on the jury, um, uh, I would have voted for it to be Best Picture anyway. But yeah, this was a fantastic film, and it has stuck with me for years. Some of the images in the film 
some of the songs. I mean, it, it, the one of the first songs in the movie, fucking A, that has stuck with me forever. And just the sight of this guy with this long black hair with this crazy white streak in it, bouncing on this illuminated ball as he's you know trying to play Russian roulette. Fuck him, A. Fuck him, A. Fuck him, A. Fuck him, A. Slick advance men for the coming nightmare. They leave me shaking, they sucker punch me, then they slip away. My clammy sheets reflect a random flash of lightning. Then the searchlight, then the spotlight, then the flashlight in the face. So many great things in this film, and so much of it has stuck with me for so many years that when the opportunity presented itself, I was just like, this movie speaks to the political world that we're in today, even though it was made in 99. I mean, it just has that craziness that sings to me in 2016. And speaking of politics, I love how it kind of skewers both sides. <laughs> like neither, I love that as well. Neither side comes out looking good, although... The side I'm on, I, I tend to be more entertained by. So, <laughs> the side I'm not on, I, I feel sorry for how badly they're skewered. But I'm, I'm wondering if somebody on the other side would think the same way about my side. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed the, the, the bouncing on the penis bit. That was uh, the uh, song number where he's jumping on the penis around the room. If they would just move that a little forward, I think that would have kept my attention a little bit more up front. Yeah, I was noticing that the pacing of the movie is a little strange. And, well, I know we'll talk about the two different cuts of the film, but it takes us a little while to finally get into more of the, I guess, the actual plot of the film. Because there are moments in the beginning where it's just kind of like song after song. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm complaining, because I actually really love every single song that's in this. Even Penelope's song, uh, the, the White Bread Poodle song. I mean, just so many great songs in here we do sacrifice a little bit of the plot for the music at first should we talk about the the festival cut of this i mean that's the one that you're more familiar with correct there's an original cut and then a recut and i i like to think of the original cut as the vhs and the recut as the dvdr the original <laughs> cut is the don't do me beginning and then the recut is the flashback beginning okay i think i saw the flashback one with the they're talking about president bush and whatnot this is the Daily Truth Radio Network. I'm Marion White. Fireworks lit up the Capitol last night as revelers from across the nation celebrated the Supreme Court's 5-4 decision to grant President Bush an unprecedented four-year extension on his term of office. In addressing the court's postponement of this year's election, Justice Scalia wrote in the majority opinion that another drawn-out presidential campaign would only serve to question the legitimacy of the president, thus giving the terrorists exactly what they want. The biggest difference in that is that there's an opening 
that takes place before those opening credits and that opening uh, radio broadcast really isn't there in the festival cut. So we start off at this cabaret where we have call it what you will <laughs> during this terrific number. And that's where we're introduced to Existo and Maxine and some of the other players. And so that takes place before it kind of sets the stage a little bit as far as what the world is. And we see that Existo is definitely a, a little bit damaged. She's not quite running on all eight cylinders when we first meet him, which is explained in the second cut <laughs> without that explanation his very first line of dialogue just sounds so surreal. But then with the second cut, you realize what he's talking about, except then that line is missing from that version of the film. Oh my God, there's so many levels here. They almost need to do a third cut and mash it all together. Yeah. Which wouldn't be hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's a job for somebody with some time on their hands. The Existo fan edit. That's right, exactly. But we've quickly learned that we are in a world where we have these uh, broadcasts from Armand Glasscock, who's played by Mike Montgomery, who speaks to us uh, via television. And, you know, safely, we are we are very uh, into television in this, and talks about what kind of world that we're in. And just uh, it seems like the m- moral majority has definitely won the day, and they seem to be the ones that are in charge. So this whole idea of these artists who are out there, Existo and uh, call it what you will, and Maxine, and all of these great people. I mean, their club is literally called the Underground, and they are on the the outskirts of society. In fact, it seems like most art has been outlawed at this point. Isn't the club called the Sewer? Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Why? Why did I think it was the Underground? Well, because it is underground. I mean, they they okay. come in and out through that little tunnel and stuff. And one of these players that is in here is uh, Marcel Horowitz, who's played by Jim Varney. And it's always nice to see Jim Varney show up in other things. And around 99, I want to say Jim Varney was, well, he he had definitely been doing a lot of the Ernest films and everything. But I want to say that this was around the time that he was doing things like the Beverly Hillbillies and stuff. So it's interesting to see him show up in just a, a tiny but powerful role. He's just kind of like, he's there, but we don't focus on them more than just a few times. The, the restaurant bit is the, is the part. I, and I like that. He comes back to life. Like we're told that he's dead and then he shows up again. Oops. Spoiler. If I remember correctly, this was his uh, last live action role. Yeah. I think I saw something like that too. Yeah. Because he then went into more of the toy story and uh, I think he was doing the Simpsons, just a small role on the Simpsons right around this time. The Beverly Hills Billies was earlier because I'm thinking of when I actually <laughs> sat down and watched that. It must have been like 95 or something like that, 94. So, all right. Interesting that he uh, just moved into the VO role. If only there were a database where we could look it up. That was online, this interweb somewhere. <laughs> we'll talk to our people. Existo is back. He's been away for a long time, and he's back to kind of, what would you say, Skiz, kind of fire up the art community? Because he comes in and starts doing these performances, and there's at least one where it almost feels like he's channeling some outside force in order to uh, inspire the folks to take up arms against uh, the the powers that be. Yeah, he's he's rallying the troops for a guerrilla art attack, roving bands of public performance art. Yeah, well, they're, I know they remember they were talking about a Maplethorpe, some, something about doing something along the lines of a Maplethorpe. And yeah, their little, uh, their guerrilla art show, the names of what they were doing were all pretty, pretty good. 
There's uh, the sound of almost bombs falling in the background at one point when they're trying to get through to one of the artists. And yeah, oh, yeah. so many of the people have, have passed away on their, their exhibit or they aren't there anymore. So now they're doubling and tripling roles. Yeah, they were all they're, like We're all we're all double acting or something. Yeah, that was that was a good one. That was yeah, that was like like being in the bunker. statement you copy over there's another person that we haven't talked about who is ruben dupree who's played by mark cabas and he's kind of on the outs from the powers that be but he wants to be there he's like this kind of simpering brown noser and is really sucking up to glass cock boy that sounded wrong he's Working for Glasscock, but he's accepted in the club, barely. I mean, Maxine can barely control her um, dislike of this character. And it sounds like he sold her and everybody out at one point. I got the impression that maybe he and Maxine and Existo were a threesome at some point, and then he sold them out. But uh, unless I'm reading too much into the movie, that was the impression I got. (laughs) And I have to say that I love the the crew of the people at the sewer and just the, you know, everybody has their own specialty. And they do that great kind of roundtable thing where they're going through all of the different people and what their uh, their expertise is. And the, especially the one guy who wants to try to correct Maxine and talk about his new concept and how he really is working on this. I mean, it, you're right, because it really does skewer both sides because so many of these people are so full of themselves when, when it it comes to their their art and it's wonderful that no one is left unscathed in this film yeah i mean that was i think that was the one during that same scene where like they introduced the one artist woman and she says she was working they introduced her as working in rat feces or something or rodent feces yeah and then she says not anymore but that's okay i don't want to derail the meeting right exactly we finally get uh ruben and or sorry rupin and Glasscock working together, they're going to kind of what? What is it? Um, Rupin says that he can help turn Existo and use him as a tool for the moral majority instead of being this uh, this tool of the arts. And he decides to um, enact the uh, the power of pussy, as it mm-hmm. were, and uh, have the introduction of uh, Penelope, who's uh, played by Jenny Littleton, who is just this. Oh my God, I love her character. Just the the squeaky voice and this kind of ingenue that she is. Doesn't Colette call her a pop tart? Yes, she is a pop tart. She brings in this song that has nothing to do with anything other than describing her character as being this white bread poodle. As all of the other songs, they get into some uh, some deeper stuff. I'm a little purebred. Yes, it's true, my is blue my papers tell of breeding non-pareil 
my family pain I must get off this gravy train There's a job across the tracks that I must smell. The lyrics to that song, the differences between her white bread poodle and I guess Existo's junkyard dog. I'm bathed in perfume. He rolled in something dead. You know, there's just so many great dog references to the lyrics of that song. And his songs and the songs that he does with Maxine. The other one that always sticks out for me is the one where they don't even really have very many lyrics. Just that. Mm, yeah. Uh, huh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, if you need some songs, this this movie will do it for you too. And because I think that you've been on mostly musical episodes, which is uh, I, I think fitting. <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite genres. It's fantastic, and like I said, all of the songs in here, I mean, they really work for me. There's not one song in the soundtrack where I'm just like, oh yeah, let's fast forward past that. And then even the incidental music, I think, works really well, especially the scene that Scott was just talking about, where uh, Existo and Penelope have kind of uh, finally hooked up, and um, <laughs> I do like that she doesn't really want to have anything to do with him sexually or really any other way. She is very much, you know, just kind of pretending and, and using him and the, uh, the artists break in and they, they set up a bomb under the bed and they have the, the artists at one point are about to get caught. So they have to hold the bed up almost all night long. So they don't blow up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But that moment afterwards, when he wakes up and he tries to commit suicide and, and one of the guys is chasing him around. I mean, I love that, that music that's happening during that whole kind of cartoonish chase. It's definitely reminiscent of the music that Bruce did for uh, the Ernest Saturday morning show. But yeah, there is that, that great moment that we mentioned earlier, the, uh, when Penelope and Exister are, are out to lunch and, uh, Jim Varney's character comes in and does that very public art display. Marcel comes in and does that, uh, calling uh, him out and then ends up what getting shot in the nose. Yeah. yeah that was it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, so we don't ever know, like I, I saw some comment, the comments for this pretty good are pretty good on that. And I did find that internet thing that we were talking about, but like he comes in and he's like, they called him like, um, cream of wheat guy or something like what is he he's got like underwear on and then he's got some kind of substance plastered all over him and they never really explain that did i miss something there he almost looks like a greasy strangler i was gonna say <laughs> oh my god yeah, don't. <laughs> i think it's just art okay was he doing some kind of art piece maybe before that yeah the, and again just kind of skewering skewering that art scene that that is how he's going to make his public statement i suppose okay, there we go all right fair enough I never thought I'd see Jim Varney completely covered head to toe and, you know, whatever that is, cream <laughs> of wheat or plaster of yeah. Paris. But yeah, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward thing. It's it's good versus evil, but like kind of good versus evil. And along the way, we kind of get to see uh, um, if that moral majority wins the kind of world that we might live in. And uh, I, I'm surprised that they haven't rounded up everybody at the sewer and kind of put them in camps, you know. Big spoiler because the ending shows that perhaps the the conservative side is right about something like 
yes. prediction that's made that ends up coming true at the very end. And you're like, oh, crap, that's like a whole nother movie right there. I know. And it's like, I know we'll never get Existo 2, which I so wish that we would. <laughs> Maybe. Kickstarter is always out there, Mike. That was interesting, too, at the very beginning where they do whatever their religious TV show and they say sponsored by blah, blah, blah Corporation, which is like it was like a bunch of different um, corporation names altogether. But then that's kind of that's been making the, you know, the Internet rounds now is that we have that map where it's basically six corporations that are controlling all of the media right now. I was amazed a few years ago when I was working for um, Georgia Pacific and Unilever and just seeing that between those two com- companies, it's like pretty much everything that you eat or you know use to wipe your body or anything like that. All from these two companies. Yeah, that's, I was I was working for a uh, for a, a security software company, and it turned out like one of our biggest competitors was owned by the same venture capital firm. You know, so if you trade, so it was like we were competing against ourselves. It was really, it was kind of odd. I love that we get these cutaways to like Mr. and Mrs. America, and the guy's got this weird like empty head thing going on where they put like chip dip in it yeah no that's the thing so i didn't realize what that was until i read your notes and i was like oh that's kind of you know symbolic of the audience or the reality or of of the society at the time isn't that the same guy who's playing the evil dude too like the guy on the couch yeah i thought he looked like rupin originally yeah. I, I don't think it is uh, I can uh, hold on. I'm putting my I'll put myself as official fact checker and I'll look. That's what I'll do right now. I love that part of the one song where he starts telling the story about the coworker calling him and him pretending to be like a third world refugee. You know, it's like, and finally the guy says, "No, it's it's Parker." But he had me going. He had me going. Bob, I talked to Parker the other day at Evans and Weintraub, and I told him to hold on to those mutuals until we could get a clear sense of the kind of fourth quarter margins we'll be looking at. Well, he said, I'm sorry, but you must have the wrong number. I'm a pitiful third world refugee, literally living at a subsistence level. I just lost my wife in a raging flood, and my children are eating the feet off a dog. Well, I had to stop for a second and thought, what the hell? Well, he finally laughed and said, this is Parker, but he had me going. He had me going. (laughs) He had me going. He had me going. He had me going. <laughs> he had me going. He had me going. He had me going. He had me going. When the uh, members of the moral majority finally come to the club and it's supposed to be this whole, you know, the prodigal son has returned and, and he's now going to be a tool for us instead of for the underground. The the song that he sings there and just talking about how much money he's got and how that's, you know, fulfilling every single need and just really playing off of that whole idea of, you know, greed uh, for all intents and purposes is good and uh like i said so many good songs in this i remember getting the soundtrack cd and the one song that wasn't in the film our love festers i remember thinking oh i'm, I'm so glad they left this out but then it's used as the closing credits music on the second version of the film with existo and maxine singing it and now when i see it i just i think it's such a brilliant performance i mean the, the two of them singing these harmonies together of this like sort of nonsense scat singing and, and then these the lyrics themselves are are hilariously gross again yeah somebody needs to make a fan edit and figure out where that scene was supposed to come and put it back in there because it yeah, <laughs> one more great song to add to that film 
I have to say that the woman that plays Maxine, what's her name? Jackie Welsh, is that right? Yeah. She does such an amazing job in this, and she is just right there matching all of this lunacy. And so it really didn't surprise me to see that she had gone all the way back to being on the Haven show with these guys because she just knows the rhythms and all of these people they they just it, it's a, a well-oiled machine the guy who plays colette what you will again he's right there with all of this and and just this whole thing it feels like it had been rehearsed and practiced so long before it came in front of the the camera because it just there's this fluidity to it that you don't get in too many other low budget movies and and this doesn't necessarily look low budget either i think the the transfer looks bad Mm -hmm. and i would love if they could go back and kind of clean that up but you know it's it's very well filmed that's beautifully framed that you know the the everything about it is is very professional and i was you know it's one of those movies where when it doesn't make that big break you're just like well why not there's so many other movies that are of lesser value or, or say less or just don't look as good that they get out there. But Existo is pretty much top notch to me. Time to do an HD transfer and make a DCP and get it on the revival circuit. <laughs> think so. Yeah. We'll put you in charge of that. Uh, I, I would do it if I. <laughs> <laughs> while we're, while we're talking about Jackie, just as my, as our appointed, uh, have self-appointed, uh, uh, trivia guy. I just thought she, she, she is a certified neurolinguistic programming coach. Apparently now she's a life coach. That's what she does. And I think she's still acting too. Yeah. It looks like she does. She's, she's still out there and about, yeah, out and about there too. But you know, in addition to everything else. So she's multi-talented, does a few things. And I thought, I did think I recognized her from Ernest too. Mrs. Simon Simmons, I think on the Ernest show. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's correct. Oh oh boy. All right. I can tell that Scott is all fired up here to uh, talk about some Ernest stuff. So let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to play a trio of interviews. The, uh, first one we'll hear from is director Coke Sams. Then we'll hear from the star and co-writer Bruce Arnston. And the third one we'll hear from is Jay Clark Gallivan, the producer. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. And I, I kind of hope that this week blog talk radio sends us another set of Donald Trump ads, because I can't really think of anything more more or less appropriate. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, (laughs) horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, God. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. 
Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show. So you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be... Deadly weapons. And body counts. Body count. The mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. It's an election cycle that makes parody and satire feel feel unwieldy that it it almost comes out of the out of the gate uh, right. as satire. Doesn't need that middle filter. It really doesn't. I, and, and to have two of the most unpopular candidates of all time, if this doesn't signal the end of both parties, we're missing a good chance. I want to ask you about you, first of all, and how you kind of got into the business. I got into the business as a writer. And that's really been, you know, the, the basic nerd with the, with the pocket protector. I started with that and have always loved writing and I guess was was raised in a time when the great American novel was kind of the fading goal of writers. And when I was coming along, the great American movie became more what I was interested in. And through, uh, you know, just good fortune and banging away at the entertainment business, I had miraculously had opportunities to write a couple of really low budget screenplays for money. One of the first ones, me and another guy split $1,500, my collaborator. And I felt like, gosh, with money like that, if those kind of riches lie ahead, where would this lead? So I started off writing genre pictures and cut my teeth on on really uh, karate movies and horror movies and very straight ahead genre pictures where the uh, the guy that was paying paying for the screenplay said, 
I really don't care what you do, but we need a fight every five pages. In the other case of the uh, horror movie, that we need something scary and awful to happen every five pages, which kind of provided a roadmap to pay off the genre. And I, I got into the film production business in Nashville. We started doing the first, I guess, quasi-legitimate thing movie I got into was uh, working with, we, our, our company was working with Jim Varney, John Cherry, uh, doing those earnest commercials. Varney was a, a real comic dynamo, and the commercials caught on and started going national. And so we did a, a low-budget kind of a sci-fi spoof called Dr. Otto and the Riddle of the Gloom Beam, uh, which went nowhere, but the only soon after that, Disney came along wanting to do something with, with Varney and with us. And because we had made Dr. Otto, we had a chance to... Uh, to do Ernest Goes to Camp, and because it made money, then that sort of launched, or very much launched, a franchise. We did four movies with Disney, and I think went on to do seven or eight more, and that really put me in the business. I would say just plain dumb luck is what got me going. Did those uh, karate and and horror films, did those get picked up? Did they get made? They were made by uh, a guy that that owned drive-ins out west in Texas. He had decided... Hell, I can do that. He would run a Bruce Lee movies, and he would make his own movie. And I don't think they ever did much commercially, and I've never seen them since. But they were, I mean, it was a grand adventure, and that was back, that was in the 70s, when it was more of a, you know, there were there were crazy independents. Well, up in Pittsburgh, you know, they were doing Night of the Living Dead, and that was starting that was started as a homegrown enterprise. And in North Carolina, there was a guy named Earl Owensby who was doing, who was, I think, owned heavy equipment and a construction company. And he was making independent movies. And it was kind of floating around. And I think this fellow just thought he could give it a try. And thank goodness he did. They were terrible, terrible movies. But it felt like a foot in the door. What was Jim Burney like to work with? He was a great guy. A good friend, and we got to work together, I don't know, 20 years or more. There was so much energy within the guy, and he had never wanted to be anything but an actor. He didn't want, he always said he didn't want to be a fireman, he didn't want to be a cowboy, he wanted to be the actor that played them. He had grown up in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, where he had been the theater nerd who won the state drama competition. He was so ready. And literally, he carried all of us on his back. A tremendous talent. A lot of the early stuff, we would just get get in a room and start bouncing ideas. And, and Jim would just take off on a tear. And I'd be writing writing as fast as I could. You know, film is a, is a collaborative medium. And you get somebody like that that's just throwing out bits and pieces and characters and gags. And I feel like, you know, I... I I was helpful in structuring things and working with John Buster, John Cherry, on form and stories around it. But Jim was, he was a great physical comedian. He was great with slapstick. He knew a lot about, he had a good sense of people and the world and what would resonate. And he had always been an entertainer. And he was the, he was the engine of that whole, whole machine. And the Disney people recognized it and... You know, the fact that he got to, he was great with character voices, uh, Slinky Dog he did in uh, the Toy Story stuff, and 
he was he he was on the cusp of I think what could have been a long long career and got sick and died. But a wonderful, a great guy to work with, and utterly one of the boys. Always fun with the crew. Always happy to be working. Just a, a joy. Tell me about you meeting Bruce Arnston. How did that happen? Uh, there was a comedy group that I was working with in Nashville called Gonzo Theater, and they were doing sketch comedy. It was a, a really a, a good troupe of, of people. And one night at one of their shows, Bruce came on and did a, a guest bit. And what he did was he walked out, walked out with a, a saxophone and played a kind of a, well, a real noir riff and started telling the story in this kind of Norwegian accent about it was a cold night in the city. The only sound he could hear was uh, the sound of, a, of a, do- a distant dog howling, a dog frozen to a fire hydrant. And he went on and painted this picture of this, of this guy and this woman that he had lost. And he, as he was telling it, he pulled a roll of saran wrap out of the bell of the saxophone and held it up in front of the audience and did a started waving it back and forth and doing a flashback uh, transition to another part of the story and then did another transition to bring us back in. And then he played some saxophone and walked off stage and, and it just killed the audience. None of us had ever seen anything like that. And so I got to know him after that. Over time, we started working together. He was He's terrific with music. And so we got him to score, I think probably Ernest Goes to Jail might have been the first score that he did. He was working with Kirby Shellstead, and they were pumping out music. And recent scoring comedy is different than scoring anything else because you don't want to be too much on the money. You don't want to just be wah, wah, wah. He had a, a real gift for melody and for the sincerity that it takes to play really stupid scenes uh, dead serious. So we started working that way. And then as we became friends, then I got him to, uh, we started co-writing together and he wrote, we wrote Ernest, Ernest goes to school together. Ernest, er, this whole Ernest thing was a training ground for many, many of us. And so, you know, we had this really money machine that was running. And, and so you'd look for Here's a talent, an amazingly talented guy like Bruce. So come on, let's write a screenplay together. And then we got good at that. And for a while, then we we wrote a puppet movie. Guys came to us and said, can you do a puppet movie? So we wrote a puppet movie together. And then we pitched, Bruce had another pair of characters that we pitched out in uh, Los Angeles. And we, next thing you knew, we had a development deal at Paramount and we wrote a screenplay with them. And so we just started working together from there. In the entertainment business, if you see someone that's that has the kind of talent that Bruce has, you really want to find a way to do something together. Some funny people are fueled by anger or something dark, and Bruce does not seem to be at all, which makes him really fun to work with. Who are some of the other people that kind of came out of this, for lack of a better term, Ernest School? Who were some of the other people that you worked with on a regular basis with all these uh, Ernest films? Gaylord Sartain. He was established by then, but he was part of the troupe. He was uh, 
He played the the crazy weatherman on Hee Haw. He played the the terrible, uh, the racist sheriff in Mississippi Burning. He's had a long, wonderful career as a character actor, and he was part of the troupe. He was in that bunch, and who else was in there? We got to work with some really interesting Canadians. Uh, Linda Cash is the one that comes to mind. She was hilarious. I think she's from Toronto. The whole film community here, there I could name people that learned their crafts here that mean nothing to you, but the but what we had was an up and running film industry here that got running in no small degree because of the because Varney came along and suddenly guys like me that had been doing okay had a real sense of purpose. I could still do all the I could still do country music videos, I could still do commercials, I could still do all the stuff I was already doing. And then you knew that I knew that I would end up writing three to five screenplays a year for the earnest thing. I would, you know, they wouldn't all be produced, but usually often one was. And if whatever got produced, I'd be doing a rewrite. And there were guys, there were people, there was a grip department that grew out of that and equipment grew out of that and sound department grew out of that. So it was, it was a fine endeavor. Well, it seems like you kind of worked yourself through the ranks when it came to different roles with that as well. You know, and I knew that you were a writer on these, but also seeing you as second unit director and then eventually director of something like Ernest Goes to School. How was that experience for you? Did you ever have this kind of inkling that you wanted to be a director when you started off writing these films early on? Yeah. Yes, I did. In my real life, I was, uh, I was already directing when that's when that came along, I had partnered up with a guy named Jim May, and we had we had a film production company, and so we were already winning awards in advertising, and music videos were coming along, and we started doing really well with them. Part of what's fun about Nashville is it is an odd entertainment community. Um, I grew up outside of Atlanta, which is another fine town, but it never had the it never felt like the it had the entertainment. It was not Music City. And and there was always a lot of work here, working for the record labels. And um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to direct. It was, and I think, you know, if you have the, if you have the basic temperament and you are a writer, you're, you're essentially visualizing how this stuff will play. So if you then are willing and to take some more time, you can, and learn another craft, you can, you can learn to communicate with actors, I was already doing live live shows. I was doing live sketch comedy. I was doing some plays and theater work. And, you know, a lot of it happened unintentionally, but most of it happened because I, I was, I've always, I've really loved the entertainment business. I like either making people laugh or making them recoil in horror or whatever it is you're trying to do. So I, I had, I had designs on that and I've, I've been able to keep, keep putting one foot in front of the other. The writing has been a great craft to focus on. What was the genesis of Existo? I think we were doing uh, a, a show with, with Jim Varney again, an earnest, earnest TV show for CBS. And I know that Bruce brought, Bruce had a, a version of Existo by that point, because Existo appears in the, uh, in the show called Hey Vern, It's Earnest. And, uh, the way Bruce first introduced me to Existo is he said, I really, I wanted, I've got this character who tr- I see him as, as traveling 
from elementary school to elementary school in a broken down station wagon. And he's a he's an existential magician who performs in lunchrooms and teaches children the meaninglessness of life through magic. And it was such a funny idea to teach the meaninglessness of life through magic. And so he started working on on the character at least that long ago. If you go back and and uh, actually, last time I looked, the uh, the entire series of Hey Vern, It's Ernest was available on Amazon for like five or six bucks, and it's it's thirteen half hours of I think very peculiar comedy. But Bruce's part in there, he then Bruce did. Actually, that show was good for him because he did. He was writing the show, and he did Existo. He did uh, a country. He was half of a country music duo called Bill and Koo, and then he wrote a thing. It was a. It was like a sketch show uh, organized around loose themes like like holidays or food or scary things. And Bruce had a had a really uh, interesting notion called the Clown Family that was. Uh, it was about a, a full-blooded clown who married a woman with no sense of humor. And they had twins, one of whom was a clown, and the other one was, was born with no sense of humor. So it was this odd little family unit that we shot like a sitcom. And Bruce would come into writing sessions and would have the damnedest ideas. And the way he worked was really different than, than most of the other guys. The other guys were... We're more like a what you think of as a writer's room where people are throwing ideas at the wall and they're entertaining each other. And Bruce would kind of hang back and then he would show up with pages that would just knock you out, would just take everybody by surprise, both in how funny they were and how just original they were. So that uh, I think this is a long rambling answer to, to where did Existo come from? But that was that was the first incarnation of Existo. And then at some point. Um, we decided to try to do an independent movie that was the movie that, that you ultimately saw. And then, then it sort of took a, a darker, uh, more political turn. And, and also, by that point, Bruce uh, wanted to make it a music musical. And uh, the magic fell away, and the idea of a magician fell away, and he was this sort of uh, anarchistic uh, musician. Well, it definitely seems like he has quite a backstory when it comes to the film. It feels like this is the next chapter of what Existo has been doing. Very much. Very much. We didn't quite know how to handle that character, I would say, in some ways. We were trying to make uh, an art movie and a comedy movie. And and the music, the music was so, I don't know, I, I love the music that came out of that. And, and there were many things in it that, that I loved. And I felt like we, we were, yeah, we were fortunate to get to make that one. And we were coming off of so much commercial success. And it was felt like in a way we, we got tremendous support from the theater community, all those actors, everybody in the film community kicked in. We, it was a very, it was a galvanizing production because so many people, I guess we, we had tried, you know, you try to bank good karma as you go through life. And we had worked with so many folks for so many years regularly, you know, with we were loyal to them and they were remarkably loyal to us. And making that movie 
really was one of the great experiences of my life. It was so much fun. It felt like it was about something uh, in a way that, and partly it was about getting Nashville actors, giving them very different roles than they than what they were have, usually having. And and everyone that knows Bruce has knows that he is a a really one of a kind talent. The thing he's been doing for the last eight or ten years, the Doyle and Debbie show, is one of the most durable and amazing theatrical of productions I've ever seen. And it's been running now for eight to ten years. And it still it runs here in Nashville every week. It ran in Chicago for eight months. It ran in uh, Denver for five or six months. It's won awards everywhere it's gone. And you just uh, with Bruce, you really just wonder what's going to happen next. Um, And so Existo was was a chapter in that. He's just one of the nicest guys ever. And this remarkable talent. So Existo was everybody that had ever seen worked around Bruce uh, uh, coming together to try to do something that would showcase his his abilities. And um, and so it was a grand party. The movie has such a a great, well, literal underground type of feel to it with the club and everything, but it sometimes feels subversive that it even got made. It seems like it must have been a real challenge to make something that doesn't necessarily seem like it would have held the most wildly commercial possibilities. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You have a gift for understatement. Um, You know, it's funny to think back because at the time – we were all, uh, I say we in a loose sense, cause I, but there, but many of us had been, had been making, uh, making a real Bruce among us had been, had been doing really well with these, with Disney movies, with, uh, independent earnest movies. The earnest thing had just thrown off a lot of commercial success. And as with anything, I think if you're, uh, if you're a searcher at all, if you're, uh, if you have, or, 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 or cult, if you continue to cultivate an original vision, then you tend to bridle at any constraints. And so we were really looking for something very different from the uh, tremendously popular stuff we'd been, been working on. You know, you always hope that lightning will strike whatever you, you do. And in many ways, I, I feel like the, the movie never really had a chance to uh, to get an audience. And, you know, it played at a lot of festivals. It won a, num- uh, a bunch of audience awards. It won some nice awards. And it, and it, w- and it was just so different. And timing is, is either your friend or your foe. And I think our sense of timing and I guess we, I think it'd be fair to say that we were, we were not, none of us were really familiar with the ins and outs of independent film marketing and distribution. And I think we just, we didn't quite, we had this thing. We didn't quite know what to do with it. We knew that it had a great, uh, it had some fanatic fans. It had, uh, it was offending some of the right people, which, you know, I think was part of its intent. We had investors in it. We decided the best thing for the investors were, was for us to more or less put it to sleep so that they could take their investment as a write-off. It's never been available, widely available on DVD. It's never done streaming. And I do think about it now that the world has 
has changed yet again, and the digital possibilities uh, for streaming and for uh, really for eclectic content has never been greater. So I, I do think about maybe dusting it off, take, bringing it out of the crypt and taking it back out there, just because it would be fun to have it seen. There's a lot of good work there. There are a lot of great songs in it. And Bruce, you know, Bruce and I are, are, are we're just talking an hour or so ago about another movie we're trying to do together. So uh, I, I hope I hope that it's not. I'd love to see Existo make one more one more trip through the park before we all fade into the sea. Well, if somebody did want to see it today, is there a good way for people to find this film? Not really. How about the soundtrack? Nope. There again. And partly because of its, because we've never taken it out. It's part. Of, it bugs me that so many people put so much hard work into a thing, and that it's not available. That there are halfway decent bootlegs, but what Bruce and I have talked about doing, and and Clark Gallivan, who produced the movie, is uh, a co-conspirator, and Peter Curlin also a co-conspirator. But I think we're. I think what we're. What we may well do is I'd like to have one more shot at color correction. And Bruce and I have just the tiniest little bit of editing that we'd like to do on the front. And then I think we may bring it out because it's uh, it's just it's kind of a time capsule for many of us. And, uh, and some to really terrific, terrific performances from some people that I've worked with my whole life. I hope that within the next year, that it, that it would become available, Mike. What are some of your favorite memories of working on the film? We had some resources, but there were days when we would have to do, say, 11 pages of dialogue and a song. And it's really daunting when you're, when you're working against a clock, and there you are telling these actors, most of whom were theater actors, that you're going to, on such and such a day, we're going to basically turn a camera on and we're going to keep shooting and we're going to, everybody needs to be ready. And, and they were, and it was watching Well, part of what you were saying. It's that there was an anarchistic feeling. It felt like blows against the empire and everybody was cranked up. And I think working with the actors was a great thing. There were some things that we thought would be simple. There were some bits with the car. We had a car that would run sometimes other times you couldn't make it run. I remember in being in my car behind our picture car with the scene going on up there with me pushing the car from behind with my car. Actually, the whole experience, the rap party was exuberance. Uh, it was unbridled enthusiasm and joy. We had done the thing that, that no one thought we could do. And I guess there was just a joyous quality to it. Bruce had performed he had gotten in shape like an athlete to do it. And Jackie Welch, who plays Maxine, is a wonderful actress. And she she was totally in shape. Everybody knew their lines. And then the extras that came in to form the crowd in the clubs and in the different scenes, they would dress up. They it felt like a Rocky Horror moment where I guess it was just the fact that everybody gave and gave and gave. And their hopes were so high. And... It just makes for a good time. And, you know, in your in your heart, you know, this may work or it may not. But the experience of making it really was uh, joyful. 
after Existo, you talked a little bit about the reception of the film and kind of what happened to that, but what happened with you? It seems like you kind of moved more into producing rather than directing, or were you still doing the commercials and music videos at that time? I had more or less quit the music videos and commercials by that point. I've stuck with writing, and I've done a lot of producing. I found that I could produce, work with Clark Gallivan. Uh, she's a, she's a, a wonderful producer, and then... What I found another aspect of producing is helping writers write or or writing. I found that I could do more. I was perfectly happy writing and producing. So directing fell kind of by the wayside. The only thing I really am eager to direct, I would love to work with Bruce on one more on the Doyle and Debbie movie. I think that would be great fun. I, I've gotten to stay home more. I came off the road. I ultimately drifted away. Although Varney stayed a friend until he died, there was a time when I, I separated myself from from that. And I had a semblance of a personal life, a wife that I wanted to spend more time with. And so I, I found ways to stay at home more. But and when more and that led to writing and producing and um and it's been it's been fun. I really uh the entertainment business takes you in the strangest directions and puts you in touch with some of the best people I think you could ever run into. I continue to enjoy it, and there are a few, a handful of projects I would love to do, but a number of them would be with Bruce, just because we've, he's, a, to find a remarkably talented person like him, who is also a genuine human being, is a wonderful thing. We remain very close friends, and we have a, a few more things that we'd like to do together. I know, of course, the entertainment industry has changed over the last 30 years or so, but how has the Nashville entertainment industry changed as you've been working in it for all of these years? I think, I guess internally, in Nashville itself, there actually is a, a film community. Digital equipment has spawned, has made access to tools so much easier for everybody. And so I've gotten to work with a, a, a number of, of really excellent younger filmmakers. The fact that there's the there's the Nashville TV show has meant that probably more Nashville film workers have health insurance um, and have made house payments now uh, lately than ever. And there's another there's another show some some friends are are making for CMT called uh, Still the King with Billy Ray Cyrus. So there's actually a, a relatively vibrant film community here. There's the Nashville Independent Film Festival, which has never been stronger. And then there's uh, an, some uh, almost an alternative film festival called the Defy, Defy Film Festival. I think ran this last weekend. It's kind of the other part, let me say, the other part about Nashville today as opposed to Nashville when I started that's, that's very nice is because Clark Galvin and I are, are back and forth to Los Angeles probably a week out of every month. And it's never been cool to be from Nashville until lately. And now there's a certain cachet to the work that's, that comes out of here. There's a terrific uh, sort of alt country and alt rock scene here. There's an Americana music scene here. There's a, a wide variety of music here. And I think the, as, as the, I think that repre- reflects the sensibility of uh, a broader culture that is here. And, I, you know, you want to feel like you played some part. I, I, I feel like uh, there's, I certainly had an opportunity here 
to be a part of a community. And when we needed help on film, films, promo pieces, speculative pieces, there was never any shortage of help. So living here, really, it was the right size. I mean, it was, it just has worked out. And to see the, see it kind of come to, uh, I mean, the, the, the town has totally changed from a sleepy little dumbass town to a, a really a place that has a, a wide cultural range of people and thought here. So, you know, I've seen, I've seen the meter move just a little in my lifetime. And what are you working on these days? It's working on a handful of projects. Uh, like I said, Clark Galvin was a, was a partner, business partner for many years, and the two of us have decided that our, our last charge up the big hill we're gonna. We're taking. We have some. Have a couple of movie projects. One. One of them being Bruce's. One of them being an earnest, an earnest related reboot uh, that we're trying to get started. And we're doing some episodic pitching. Some episodic shows. I'm doing some writing that I'm really enjoying. I don't know that it's ever going to be that I'm ever going to write anything other than screenplays. But I'm I'm uh, I'm adapting a novel right now to a screenplay. That's it will be another independent movie. I still I've always dabbled and I think I've never done it with greater purpose than than I am now. And part of that is uh, back to Nashville as a community. It's been uh, in addition to supportive, it's been a, a relatively inexpensive entertainment center to live in. And so that has really afforded me a level of eccentricity that I don't believe I could have developed anywhere else if I was having to hustle so hard just to stay, just to keep, you know, house payments up. I'm grateful to have stumbled into this town and uh, the people that I've met here have definitely influenced me. And and together, I think we've done some, some interesting work. Mr. Sams, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. You're a fun guy. I mean, you make, you make this very easy, Mike. And, uh, and, and the, uh, the esoteric nature of your, uh, your request. Uh, is uh, is refreshing. So I I look forward to uh, maybe we'll meet again. And if if we ever do the if we ever do a, a new version or a final version of Existo, I will. Uh, I'd love to get you one. How did you get into show business, and or how did you get into music? I should say. Uh, well, that was the main draw for me. That was my primary thing, and I played in rock bands growing up in high school. I moved to Nashville from Minnesota in my mid twenties for music, and I just I'm more backed into theater and film than anything. But it would it all started with music, and that kind of remains a focus for sure. And how did you get involved with the whole uh, Ernest phenomenon? One of the directors and producers was uh, a fan of my uh, rock rock and roll circus show, and he and, and it's pretty eclectic. It was pretty eclectic music. I was all over the map, and he thought that would be appropriate for their uh, Saturday morning. CBS kids show that they were about to do, which was kind of on the heels of the uh, Pee Wee Herman phenomenon. 
And so they had a, a weekly Saturday morning CBS show, and I wrote uh, a little song for each of them is how it started. And then out of that, the, uh, the main guy that, that ran the uh, Ernest organization asked if I would score the next Disney film that they did. So it kind of all just spun out from there, and I got sucked in. I learned basically learned how to write screenplays and the, everything else for that little Ernest school. A lot of us went to school with Ernest for film back in those days. What was Jim Barney like to work with? Uh, he was great. He was a, he was a, I mean, he was a country boy, and so you know he was a product of the South, and all of that was real. But he just had this phenomenal talent and. Um, just his preternatural ability to do voices and caricatures and whatnot. And so, yeah, he was just a, a sweetheart, but he was definitely on all the time. There, there was never a dull moment. He told stories constantly and would regale everybody from his co-stars to the, the caterer. I mean, anybody who would listen, he would he would go. He was great. Now, I know the Existo character was originally on Hey Vern, It's Ernest, but where did he come from before that? I had invented him after I shut down my band. I tried to find a way to keep performing on my own. And so I invented him as a sort of failed magician who would travel around visiting grade schools and middle schools, teaching them the meaninglessness of life through the wonders of magic. So it was a, an existential magic show that, that he was a pathetic ma- magician trying to uh, expose these children to his misery and get paid for it. And so that was kind of the, the gist. I would you know pl- perform in, in uh, local clubs, but that would be the ruse that everybody would be expecting and then i would you know frequently have guests and a guest band or whatever that would back me up but um but most of the show was this bad bad magician was there actually any magic involved with the show no no i had a uh, a vacuum packed brick of coffee that i would drill a hole into uh to show the the void um <laughs> And and how our lives would just go dripping out as coffee would out of this vacuum packed void. And I mean, so they weren't really magical. It was just all very pathetic. And it would and it was a way to get from song to song too, because I was sitting there at a piano this whole time. How did he change or or come to be on the uh, Hey Vern show? Moving on from the uh, song per show, they asked if I would uh, write some comedy. And so I had been uh, doing uh, improv and sketch comedy for a while with a group here in town called Gonzo Theater. And so I wrote myself in and they, I ended up being one of the cast members as a result. And so uh, I was flailing for, for anything I could think of. I thought, well, I could adjust that character to be actually more palatable to children than, uh, than he was originally intended. So I just kind of um, buffed, buffed him up a little bit and made him appropriate. But he was still a failed magician for sure. But the the movie really brought me back to the original Existo, which was much more morose and pathetic. 
it must have been something for you to be writing these songs for the show, help writing with the, the show, acting on the show. And then, I mean, the idea of going from that, that that's a lot of work in itself. And then going from that into scoring one of these films when you, as far as I know, had never scored a movie before. That must have been quite a leap for you. It was. It, it's one of the biggest lies I've ever told that, um, Yes, I know how to score a film. So it was uh, panic set in once I realized what I'd done. But um, I had a good friend that uh, was much more um, traditional music and musically inclined with orchestral uh, scores and whatnot. And so, uh, and he was also more technically inclined. Had it not been for the computer and sequencing software, there's no way in hell I could have even come close to it. But it, you, you know, if you've got a decent ear, then you can, uh, you've got all of these uh, synthesizers and, and fake instruments uh, at your disposal, and you can kind of shape a, uh, an orchestral score. And, and, I've, and I've always loved that kind of music. I've always loved Bernard Herrmann, and, and, then, and Danny Elfman was the, our generation's, the guy who aped Bernard Herrmann better than most for a while. And so, uh, I, you know, I kind of used that as my jumping off point and then uh, had plenty of help along the way. I had friends who were actual orchestrators and, and whatnot. So, yeah, it, it still was hectic. It's, it's, a, it's a bugger of a job. Even when you're adept and know what you're doing, you get slammed um, with a little bit of time to do an, almost an hour's worth of music. You're the one at the tail end of the of the system that's we've got a, we've got the soundstage booked for this day. We've got, you know, the studio booked for this day. And so we won't have a lot to edit until this day. And it all just got uh, pushed down, which I've come to since come to realize is the way that works all the time. And that's why all the big guys employ, uh, you know, a a whole boatload of people to do, to do scores and cues for them. But uh, yeah, it was a, really hectic learning curve for sure now while you're working on uh the earnest films are you still uh performing and and coming up with these different characters yeah yeah definitely i still was yeah i still had a band off and on and uh was still writing my own material how did the existo film come about some of those songs were songs that i performed in my in my rock and roll band and uh, like Hoop Hoop and a couple others, I think. The director who had uh, originally employed me for the earnest stuff uh, was a, you know, was a frequent visitor um, whenever we would play out. So he's, you know, he, he dragged me into the TV show and then he, he's the one that suggested to uh, John Cherry, Buster Cherry, that he should hire me. And uh, he didn't know any better, but uh, all of those Existo songs were just songs that uh, that the, the director always liked, and so we just basically wrote a movie around the music. That's amazing because those songs they all feel, I guess, because of you writing them, but they all feel of a piece and they they fit so well in the narrative of the the story. Well, good, <laughs> that's a, that's a, definitely the goal. The songs come first, the narrative comes second. The narrative is, I would say, pretty. I don't like the word subversive, but it, it, it's pretty subversive, especially at the the political t- 
time. I mean, I, I have to say that it's as resonant today as it was in 1999, perhaps even more so. That was pretty cutting-edge stuff. I don't imagine you guys were kind of thinking that this is going to be the next uh, the English patient or something. <laughs> no, we really didn't. We, you know, we had so little time to shoot that it was, and we had so much music to do that uh, everything was really on the fly. We had to be fast and nimble. We felt lucky that we got as much on the screen as we did. Tell me about Jackie Welch. How did you meet her, and how did she uh, come to be in Existo? She sang in my band. Actually, I met her in that uh, in that improv uh, sketch group, uh, Gonzo Theater, and uh, uh, she sang um, uh, every now and then in that in the comedy context and sang great. And so. When I formed a band, I got her in it and a couple other women. And she and I would frequently put on wigs and dress up and and do songs in other characters and uh, even do a section of the evening in in character. And uh, so I've been I've been doing that kind of thing with her since the early 80s. I have to ask about the hair. I don't imagine that was a wig. Oh, no, it was me actually. I think you know uh, the 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 uh, the famous ballet russe uh, director or, or uh, impresario from Russia that that had uh, all the famous uh, all the famous uh, ballet stars in France, and he and so he was this larger than life character who hung out with Picasso and and. Uh, all of the, all of the uh, surrealists and his, Diaghilev with his name. And he had this streak of white going through his hair. And it was always just to me so dramatic and odd. So I, that's where that came from. How did you first come to work with Jenny Littleton? Cause I know you guys have gone on to do uh, Doyle and Debbie for years and years afterwards. Yeah. She auditioned uh, of my ex-wife uh, who was also in the movie um, in Existo, uh, told me I should audition her for the ingenue. And so, uh, we did Coke and I, the director auditioned her and, uh, she, she was really good, but there was one that we liked a little better and we hired her. And then she quickly realized that it was <laughs> a little blue, a little edgy. And, uh, I think she might've been a contemporary Christian artist at the time. And she just didn't know she's and so we went back to Jenny, and then obviously it's the the happiest accident that's ever happened because we've been working together ever since. I think she's hilarious. You had asked about the politics of Existo. Coke and I are political junkies, and uh, we've been best friends forever. And so we go on walks, and we still do. I'm going walking with him in the morning, uh, and we just disgorge all of the rancid politics that are in our stream so we can get rid of it and spew at each other and then we're done and we'll move on to more pleasant things but um so we're just in you know uh veteran lefties and you know socialists <laughs> to the core but we also you know follow politics relentlessly and and love the minutia of it and always make fun of both the right and the left equally so that was kind of the goal was yeah, we're we're lefties, but honest to God, they, the lefties deserve skewering as much as the right, because <laughs> and, and they're just so pathetic. And so we just combined 
all of the art movements, all of the political movements that that we have enjoyed reading about and yammering about for years, and put them all in one big pot for for the for Existo and his lefty gang. And then at that time, uh, religious conservatism was a, a little more ascendant than it is now, and. Uh, so, you know, we put Glasscock in the front of it, but basically we did the same to the right. So there was certainly no message, obviously. It was just trying to have fun with both sides. That was it. That's one of the things that I like about it is just you talked about how ineffectual the left is and just that they choose to fight back with – um you know, uh, performance art and things like that, where it's just like, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all, it, it all seems to be done very even handedly. And also, at least when it comes to the left, a lot of love. Yeah. It, yeah. It, that comes through. That, that part was very affectionate. And I mean, we had little inside names and things for people that were obscure artists that we had always enjoyed. And so, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a labor of love. And, and like you say, that at that time there were, you know, in the in the handful of reviews that we did get from local arts papers and indie papers, there were some that, you know, offered it might be pushing it a little too far. But and then of course immediately after that, we didn't even come close to how far it went in reality. And and so we it's not really redemption since it's such a ridiculous movie anyway, but nonetheless it made us a smirk about it. I want to ask about your performance. You have such energy through so much of the film. How did you keep that up through all of the shooting? With the music it's easy for sure. That's something I've been doing for a long time. Um I'm not a I'm not an actor. I mean, I don't pretend to, to be. I don't go out and audition. I have no range to speak of. So, you know, it was just make something up and uh, and uh, infuse it with some some energy. That was kind of it. And all of my friends that were in that, everybody that we cast, they're, you know, they're local theater people who work all year long, work their asses off. A lot of times I just fed off of them and learned from them. Because I'm, you know, I'm basically a rock and roller, rock and roller pretending to act in Existo. But uh, there were just so many fun characters around me that it, it, it made me feel like I would, I could pull this off. You, know? you talked a little bit about the notices that the film got. What kind of reception did it end up getting, and well, both locally and then nationally? You know, we did. I'm not sure how many, maybe a dozen film festivals. And and that's it, really that's the exposure it got. That's the uh, the press it got. And people either hated it or loved it. There was very little ambivalence involved. It, it, it could have been more satisfying out on the road. Um, but yet, every now and then, we'd hit a city where we were darlings for a weekend, you know. And then uh, it almost found a life uh, at the end. Um, after after the festival circuit, and uh, but it didn't, and it crashed and burned through, you know, just very disappointing circumstances, and where we thought we were really close to having some major distribution, and then really it just at once that folded, we had to cut our losses and give our poor, uh, suffer, long suffering investors at least the ability to write off their investment and. So there it sits. 
what did you do after Existo had kind of uh, met its demise? I wrote a theater piece, actually, a couple of them, just because it, well, no, we, we actually, we tried to get another movie going and realized that that wasn't going to happen. And because uh, Coke and I have written many screenplays together and worked together over the years. And so, you know, we went back at it, had a couple of projects that we were pitching and going back and forth to Los Angeles. And then I, I guess my frustration led me back to the stage and uh, where I knew I could, you know, I had a friend who had a little theater <laughs> who I knew I could uh, coerce into letting me have it for a couple of months. And that was the beginnings of uh, Doyle and Debbie. And then that seems to have been going strong for a, a, a quite a while now. And just, I mean, you guys have been on Conan O'Brien. You've gotten just rave reviews. You know, I, I remember when you were playing in Chicago, and that was, what, held over for a while. I mean, it just seems like that is going gangbusters. That's been the most fun I've ever had in, in the show business. It's, <laughs> and Jenny has just been a riot. We've been, it was 10 years in June that we've been doing this. Yeah, she she is totally steeped in uh, country music and her husband plays in uh, the, you know, the best band in, in town plays upright bass called the time jumpers. And it's got a, this all-star Western swing band with Vince Gill as a side man. And they're just monstrous. And so uh, she comes from that. And, and so a lot of the country music establishment have embraced us and, you know, take it, as an homage as much as a skewering, which is a real honor to us that, that nobody, nobody's offended. And yet we're doing exactly what we want to do and being as naughty as we want to be. So yeah, it's, it's really been fun and we're trying to get a, um, we're in fact, we're going out to Los Angeles in, in uh, November to do a showcase out there to, because we've got a, a movie and a TV show we'd love to do. So we'll see. Yeah, I seem to remember you guys did a Kickstarter. Was that for a movie project? Yeah, it was. Yes, it was for uh, music for a movie, which is one of the things that we're still trying to get off the ground. So, yeah, and that and that's part of what sent me scurrying back to the stage. It's just so hard to get them done. They're so expensive that if you if nobody knows you outside of a few friends and Mike White, then it's hard to raise that kind of money. So. We're having fun on this time. The journey is a, is a blast it's because uh, we've gotten to travel some. Like you say, we did Chicago. We've you know been around the country a, just a little bit, but mostly as a music act, oddly enough, as opposed to uh, a theatrical act. And so we we generally these days are just playing music venues, and it suits us really well. Have you recorded any music as uh, Doyle and Debbie? Yes. Yes, and uh, I'll send you a CD as soon as we hang up. Oh, I was going to say, where can people go to buy it? Yeah, they can they can go to buy it. At, go to doyleanddebbie.com, and there it is. I think it's on Amazon and iTunes and all those others, too. But, uh, yeah, any way you want to go about it. But if you do get the CD, then it has uh, a, a lovely little folder in there with a lot of great artwork and all of those incredibly clever lyrics. If people are fans of the Existo music, is that available anyplace? No, it's not. Uh, oddly enough, it's not. But you, you, I think most of it's findable on YouTube. Someone posted the film on YouTube, or on YouTube. Yeah, I'm curious, since the film isn't available, when you see it available out on YouTube, 
is that all right by you, or do you it, get ticked you know, by stuff like that? It's kind of a wink and a nod, but we, we, the reason that nobody, there are no legal implications is that nobody's making any money. It just sits there. There are no ads or anything. So, yeah, I mean, we did, we've never done that ourselves just because we're always on the verge of, it's, it's never even received its just dues in post-production. It's never been color corrected. There are just a lot of issues that drive us crazy every time we see it. It's just, it's so dark. That, uh, and that needn't be with just a, a little bit of digital processing. We can make it look very pretty and, and very, and, uh, but you know, it, and we, I'm sure we'll do that someday. Uh, I think I'll be in my late eighties, but we'll do it. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a real pleasure. Likewise, Mike. Thanks. interested in film? Yeah, I took a lot of film studies courses in college, but I was a I was going to go to law school. And so I went to a little Midwestern liberal arts college and took film almost as literature. I had a great professor, but never thought of film production as a career until I didn't go to law school and ended up working for a photographer here in Nashville who introduced me to Actually, the Coke Sams and his partner back in the late 90s, I mean, late 70s. And then I sort of got fascinated with it by take, uh, from being on set, taking production stills, and then started working on film sets and then ended up being a, a film editor for a long time. So it was kind of after college that I actually got interested in the actual making, filmmaking. When you were doing production stills, what kind of productions were these? Mostly commercials. Com- yeah, back at, yeah, mostly commercials. Some, a couple of uh, sort of independent television pilot promo things, but it was just a way to kind of usefully be on set and start seeing what was going on. Oh, I think uh, one of my. Uh, the guy I, I worked for, the photographer I worked for, we did a lot of work with Loretta Lynn, and we did uh, some of the film production stills when she would visit the set of Coal Miner's Daughter back then. So all of that kind of infected me with this fascination with the film business. And when you started doing some editing work, what kind of stuff were you cutting? I was cutting a lot of documentaries, you know, and sometimes they were documentaries for hire. You know, it'd be like make a documentary about for the Tennessee uh, Department of Health and Human Services, you know. Um, so it's sort of a, documentaries and then got into music videos and commercials. 
and then was an assistant editor on a couple of independent films. And then I got tired of being in a small dark room all by myself. How did you get into uh, doing production work as far as actually being a producer? I went into editing sort of, it was a fork in the road between going from being a production assistant to a production manager. I really wanted to get more into the filmmaking side of it. So I went in through editing and then, and this is all pretty much based in Nashville. So it was not, I didn't go to LA or to New York. I I worked in New York some, but I didn't move there. And then through editing other people's mistakes, I decided I would rather be now back into involved in, in the earlier stages of creating the projects. So I started, I did some directing and then started producing more. This whole time, are you working pretty regularly with Coke? Um, Off and on for quite a while. I had other jobs and other freelance jobs and then eventually kind of settled into working a lot with the company he and uh, Jim May had and then actually ended up becoming a partner of that company. Can you tell me about those early days when you were working on the Ernest films? I didn't work on those as much as Coke did. I was second unit director on Ernest Goes to Jail, the one where Ernest becomes magnetic. And so after <laughs> after the, the first unit would shoot on the set all day, I would come in, me and me and a crew of about 10, and then we would do all of the uh, paper clips and pins and anything metal flying out of the drawers <laughs> that they cut away to <laughs> to stick to Ernest. And, you know, this is back in the days where everything was done on film. So you had to, you, it was practical effects, you know, and we'd shoot it in reverse. I did that. And then I was, I think, post-production supervisor on Ernest Goes to School. And I uh, worked on the, I was post-production supervisor on the TV show. There was a, a one season of uh, an episodic CBS Saturday morning show that we did that was earnest and all ki- it was all kinds of little skits, kind of, yeah, a kid's show. I've, I've been watching that this week and it is <laughs> so good. I can't believe it's so good. It was a blast. It came on right after um, Pee Wee's Playhouse. When they first put it on, it kept getting bumped around because of SEC football um, Saturday morning. But it came on right after um, Pee Wee's Playhouse. And so from what I've heard from a lot of people, it was a stoner's dream of what to do on Saturday morning. <laughs> get get kind of baked and watch uh, Pee Wee and Ernest. <laughs> so what was your experience as far as Existo goes? How did that project kind of come about? It was sort of... At the end of all the Ernest stuff, and Bruce Arnson had been involved in, I think he and co-wrote one of the Ernest movies, and then he did music composition for a lot of that. And he was just someone that was the most interesting and talented and funny person that any of us had ever met. And he had that character, Existo, and he and Coke started developing it from being a kind of existential magician to this other character. 
at some point we thought we could raise money and raise enthusiasm from crew people to make a movie with Bruce and his music and with, with Coke directing. And, um, I produced it and Peter Curlin produced it with me. And so we started going out and pitching investors in Nashville and damned if we, damned if we didn't pull it off. I mean, it was, it was sort of a children's crusade in a way. I am amazed at just how good the production looks and how uh, how many people there are in it, because I don't imagine you were dealing with a very big budget. No, we weren't dealing with a very big budget. I, I can't remember exactly how much cash we had, but everyone deferred something. The weird thing was, this is, this is sort of like the socialist in us all, it was an all-union production. It was Writers Guild, Directors Guild, IA, SAG, and AF of M. And we signed union contracts with all the unions. And, you know, even though the crew wasn't getting paid very much, they were getting a little bit towards their health insurance. And that, you know, and, and part of the message of the movie is very much in that realm. Um and, you know, Bruce was writing it and acting in it, and we wanted him to get health insurance as well. So we did it that way, and it made it a lot easier at that point to sign people on because we got we got some of the really good crew and some good actors because we were, you know, working under a contract. And that was the late 70s. It, it's a little different now, but at that point it was, you know, we, we had a an up-and-running production company in Nashville that employed um, actors and crew people on a regular basis, and so and and we always treated people fairly and paid them on time. So there was a whole lot of goodwill towards the production in Nashville, and Bruce was kind of a darling of the art scene, and all the um, all the actors really loved him and respected him. So you know, it was just it it was a great coming together of a lot of people in the film business. And it'd been a long time since there'd been kind of a homegrown film effort made. It, it was before there was a whole lot of film being done in Nashville. It was one of those dry times. So it, it was, it was kind of a perfect storm for pulling it off. Um, and we had the, uh, you know, people turned out, like crazy to be extras. <laughs> we tried to feed everyone well. <laughs> we'll work for food. What were some of your biggest challenges on that one? Working with a really low budget is, is always a challenge, especially when you have high aspirations. And then some people were doing their job for the very first time. You know, you're sort of letting people work up in their craft. And so it wasn't always the smoothest, but we had lots of seasoned pros and, uh, you know, we shot it on, on film. So on a low budget, doing an entirely film post-production was, I think, I think we, we cut on an avid and then match back to film. And so I think the whole, I mean, the whole, post-production was the biggest challenge just with limited resources and the 
the challenge of marrying new technology and old technology um, at the time. The shoot itself was, you know, we, we, we were able to find a warehouse where we could build all of our sets so we didn't have much moving around. We weren't out in the world very much. We were kind of in our own little clubhouse. And that that helped a lot because we didn't have a transportation department. And the few times we went out on location, it was a little bit of a a thrash. For the most part, it was a um it was a pretty harmonious, happy shoot. Was there ever anything that you guys wanted to do that just wasn't in the cards as far as the amount of money that you had in the budget? You know, a lot of it would have been having uh, more shooting days to really be able to light more and have, you know, more takes and not have to. I mean, we shot it pretty quickly. I think what you see on screen, we shot in three weeks. We shot another week. We had like 20 minutes before the film starts now of a bunch of stuff that we ended up totally cutting out. A lot of backstory and following Existo and Maxine before they arrive back. And it was some really funny bits, but you end up going, all right, we need to get right into the story and and the music. So, But yeah, I think, I think if we'd had... Another week, if we could have afforded to shoot another week, it would have, it would have been great. Yeah, because it seems like there's at least two versions of it out there right now that I that I can find. One where it kind of rolls right into it with like a news broadcast or a radio news broadcast, and then there's another one that starts with why am I forgetting the the crossdresser's name? But it starts with a whole musical number with with uh, with her. Um, yeah, do me. <laughs> right. Oh, God, I love that song. Then there was actually one before that that never got finished to film. So, yeah, the one that started out with uh, Colette, that was Gaylord Sartain played Colette. That one was the one that was the theatrical release. It it played at the film festivals. You know, we did that. And then we, we came back and put a, Put, took that out and put another intro on. But then there's yet another version that we never actually completely finished. Somewhere that vault footage exists. Maybe we'll reissue it on the some, some anniversary. I'm not sure which one. How was the film received when it came out? It depended on where you were. It was a film that people either loved or hated. And I guess that is a better place to be than just uh, coolly indifferent. But L.A. Independent Film Festival, we were a midnight showing, and I think we had the most people there for the midnight show thus far in the history of that film festival. We played in Vancouver as part of their sort of fringe festival at the Vancouver Film Festival, and they loved us. San Francisco loved us. Chicago loved us. We played at the um, Hamptons Film Festival. And for some reason, and I don't know why this was, a lot of very elderly people came to that showing. And you could hear their walkers and oxygen tanks clanking as they fled out the aisle after the first 20 minutes. And for the Q&A, I remember this lady said, I just have one question to ask you all. Why, with all that talent, 
would you make a film like this? <laughs> and it was Coke and Bruce and I were standing up there going sort of like, well, at least she thinks we have talent. <laughs> so, and you know, there are still people, I mean, there, there's a, there's a passionate sort of underground fan base. Um, but it did, it was either, either you liked it and got it and appreciated it, or you thought it was terrible. My parents didn't quite know what to think. <laughs> now, did the film do anything for you? Did it help open any doors or anything? Yeah, it did because we got to go on the festival circuit and it 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 taught us all a lot. It taught us a lot about making a film from the ground up, you know, raising money and putting it together and being in charge of other people's investments. It taught us a lot about distribution and how key that is and how hard that is. We fell prey to the prevailing sort of consensual mythology of independent filmmakers of the time of, yeah, and we'll go to Sundance and everyone will love it and we'll get distribution and we'll make a multiple of our money back and everything will be fine. And when that didn't happen, we didn't have a, a plan B. So we we worked really hard to try and get distribution. And I still have contacts in the distribution business from people who really liked Existo. They just didn't have a place for it in their company. A guy I still pitch things to it at, um, he's now at Lionsgate. So, you know, it, it, it did a lot. I tell you the thing that has opened the doors for, for Coke and myself has been earnest. I mean, that, because that was something that was a phenomenon that actually made a lot of money. Hollywood still respects that. But Existo, Existo really was sort of a late-life film school experience. I had read that there was supposed to be a uh, son of Ernest film. Was there any truth to that? Yes. We're pitching it right now. It's We're not calling it Son of Ernest anymore because we originally were calling it Son of Ernest, and, and we have talent provisionally attached to a great one that I, I can't really say it publicly because he's not really attached because we, we won't be able to get him signed up until we have funding. But people are really excited about the package. But everyone, what they ended up wanting was more of a new Ernest movie, you know? He, so the guy is son of Ernest. He's not trying to be, you know, he's not trying to do a Jim Varney impersonation and be, but it's more like the new Ernest. So hopefully that will be coming and hopefully it will be, yes, for like, um, a lot of the, a lot of the people and most of, most of the fans of Ernest were, were, were boys, you know, my three nephews loved it and they're all in their late twenties, thirties and have kids, you know, we're starting to have kids of their own. And that's kind of who we're trying to appeal to is, you know, kids who loved it as kids. And now they have kids. I know as a producer, you kind of have to have a lot of uh, irons in the fire. What are some of the other stuff that you're, uh, you're working on and hoping to get bites on? We're working on uh, Bruce Arnson's new project. He's got a long running, um, absolutely hysterical, musical show called uh, Do the Doyle and Debbie show. And I, uh, all I can say is just Google the Doyle and Debbie show. It's been playing here for eight years. 
he did a run at the uh, Royal George Theater for about eight months up in Chicago. And we've been trying to get an independent, little independent movie off the ground with it, but we're actually thinking it may be a kind of cool episodic thing. But it's it's Bruce's twisted and unique sense of musical humor turned on to the uh, country music world. And we've optioned and are working on optioning a couple of books and have another um, episodic pitch we're making that's based on a true life drug smuggling cartel out of Tennessee. Never knew such a thing existed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I thought y'all were about clean living down there. Well, we are, but we know some people who aren't. (laughs) Um, So we're, you know, yeah, you have to, it's, keep a lot of things up in the air. So we're, I'm just, I'm amazed that people are still talking about Existo. (laughs) Well, I kind of figure in this political climate, it seems to really hit home, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I think there ought to be a, a, um, a double bill of idiocracy and Existo. Yes. Let's just take a break from the harsh realities and (laughs) go into fantasy land. Just do me I'm too damn tired and frail to fight Just do me I know that savage appetite You see me like the little lamb Entangled in the vines Stop this morbid ceremony I can see your pheromony Do me You can dispense with protocol Just do me It's so sadistic when you stall It's obvious you only pause To wrestle with your thoughts Cast aside your common sense I'll accept the consequence Just do me Yes, my form is less than felt So sue me This is the hand that I've been dealt Can that touchy-feely crap About the girl inside If I were a flower, you'd pluck me I ain't moving till you All right, we are back and we are talking about Existo. So as you heard in the interviews and what we talked a little bit about earlier is there's a huge connection between this film and the Ernest movies and the Haver and its Ernest show and even all the way back to the Ernest commercials. And I think that all three of us are pretty much old enough to remember those mm-hmm. earnest commercials and what a phenomenon those were. And it's, it's so unusual that somebody can be in a commercial. I mean, I know Steven, the Dell guy, they were talking about giving him a series before, you know, he ended up smoking a joint and, you know, getting thrown oh, yeah. in jail for the rest of his yeah. life. But, <laughs> you know, other than like the Geico caveman, I mean, there's very rare instances where somebody can take a, a character from a commercial and actually parlay it into pretty much a whole career and and not to say that Jim Varney was limited by his acting abilities with the Ernest character but that's just the thing that struck that nerve and really jettisoned him into the limelight I mean I 
actually used to look forward to seeing those Ernest commercials play up here in Michigan when I was a kid. Yeah, that's weird because I thought it was like a southern thing because I'm from – those guys were all from Tennessee and I'm from – I grew up in Texas. And so we would see the because they would do them for our local news channel and I would see the Ernest commercials, you know. And then – but then I was looking through YouTube and then he was doing stuff for places in northern California. So they, those guys were uh, out and out there with the, with this uh, Vern, the Ernest character. Did you guys have those out in Baltimore? Uh, I know I saw them every now and then, but I think the first time I saw him was on like a uh, like an evening magazine type show where it was a story about how this guy has created this character and he's doing commercials that are shown all over the country. And that was my introduction to him as far as I know. And then maybe like in the years after that, gradually, I would start seeing him pop up in commercials. I think what they did a lot was a lot of what we call in the industry would call donut spots where they would record the beginning and end and then have a spot in the middle where you could drop in like your local offer. Mm -hmm. So you would talk about whatever kind of refrigerator and then finish it up with the the joke, basically. And in the middle, they would drop in this thing about like, get your new refrigerator over at Ollie Fredder this week, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I, of course, that's one of the smartest things to do, because then you can take that commercial and, and send it to all of these different places around the country and everybody is able to use it. But then, yeah, looking at some of those YouTube clips, it seems like some of those are very specific to regions because there were some things where he was talking about, you don't have to go over to here to buy a keg. You, you know, this type of beer comes in a can. And I'm just like, well, I've never heard of that beer mm-hmm. in my life. And so I'm thinking it's maybe like a, a Yingling or a Natty Bow or something where it's much more regional than, you know, you, you, you would advertise Budweiser nationally, but there are some beers where it's just a, a regional beer. You mean the rest of you don't have Natty Bow? Lucky you. <laughs> or, or Yingling. <laughs> I'm reenacting my trip through uh, Pittsburgh into Baltimore last time. Just, you know, where do I stop? What do I get? To go off on a slight beer tangent here. So, as you know, the, over in the States there, the hipsters are all drinking the Pabst Blue Ribbon. I take it. Yeah, well, the, the hipsters over here in the UK tried to do the same thing, but they have to import Pabst Blue Ribbon. So, <laughs> to, to the hipsters to drink a uh, uh, Past Blue Ribbon over here. I think it winds up being about fifteen dollars for a six pack. It's like the, holy yeah. shit! It's like it's like two or three pounds for a bottle. And the whole reason to drink it here was that it was the cheapest. Yeah, it was cheap. Well, we well we filmed um, the Collegians ago. There's a scene. I paid everybody. We paid everybody in beer, and I remember us buying a case. Which was 24, 24 PBRs for like seven bucks. Don't drink that beer. Test. That's right. Oh. So yeah, Ernest became this phenomenon where he ended up having a Saturday morning TV show. And I finally went back and watched that after uh, talking to Coke Sams and Bruce Arnston. And wow, it was terrific. There's some good I couldn't stuff get over how good it was. Yeah, there's some good stuff. Like I remember it. So I remember actually, you know, that's probably when I was in college. I would still go watch it and go, this is kind of, fun. I mean, like, especially when he played the baby with the big, with the, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it was great to see just all the different characters that he had because I I remember like uh, what was it Doctor Otto and the Gloom yeah, Beam the- or whatever and, <laughs> and and I remember the character from that and then to see you know that character show up in other things and yeah just the 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 ant character the baby character all these different things that he was able to pull off and then these other characters that the the actors that we see in Existo are playing as well it was just like 
wow, this this is really put together well. And it, it just it moved so quickly. In the interviews, they brought up uh, the Pee Wee's uh, Playhouse. Right. And I can really see that as far as this being kind of right there in that mold or like right there with like a, a Beekman's world. It just uh, had this kind of uh, anarchic spirit to it. But at the end, it, it really comes together really well. well let's not forget yeah. there was a character on the show called Existo. I, of course, am the great Existo, the conspicuous. And you know, magic can be a really wonderful and relaxing hobby that anyone can do. And so let me just start you out on a really simple little magic trick. First, I'm going to pull a scarf out of my hand. Just reach in like so, and... Sometimes it tends to get a little hung up in there. Whoa! <laughs> Thank you! Thank you very much! Thank you. I remember the bigger guy. I remember him from being on. Who is, he plays the Colette. Is that call it what you will? Yeah, yeah, I remember him for being on, and I think he's in a couple of the movies too. I want to say his name is Gaylord Sartain, but I'm not sure if I've got the uh, pronunciation correct. I was really happy to go back and watch these, and yeah, to see Existo as this existential magician. And then I want to say it's even Bruce. Is is it Bruce singing the theme song to Haven? I think so. I, I watched a couple okay. episodes, and Bruce definitely pops. So there's one episode where uh it's it's definitely bruce singing as the moon and the moon is tired of doing its job like oh i can completely hear bruce there and and and, i mean i know he did a lot of the music maybe did all the music and songs for the show so i mean his stamp is definitely all over that series and eventually Ernest would get into a lot of films and that was kind of a, you know, there's a whole series. I don't remember how many of those that they did, but it's funny because like all of a sudden the tide turned. And even though Ernest was incredibly popular and popular enough to be in all of these movies, people just pissed all over them. Like they were like a punchline for so many years. I mean, it's the same kind of punchline that like a, an Adam Sandler film gets today, but I think Adam Sandler gets it for good reason. And I don't think that Ernest got it for a good reason because those films are genuinely funny. I remember working in a video store in the early nineties and watching his movies at work. And and some of them seemed aimed at little kids. I mean, it just seemed like they were dumbed down, but then some of them, I remember getting into arguments with my coworkers. There were there were some, and I wish I could remember which ones. I want to say either Ernest Scared Stupid or Ernest Goes to Jail, where I was saying, if I changed the credits so that it said this was directed by the Coen brothers, you would love this film because it seemed like Raising Arizona. You know, it, yeah. it had the same kind of style to it. And I, I finally got people to actually like watch these films with a more open mind and admit that, oh, yeah, some of these films are actually really funny. Yeah, I had a friend tell me the same thing. A guy that uh, who actually recently he I'll, I'll go ahead and out him. He actually he won an Emmy. He works on the K- Jimmy Kimmel show, and he was one of the first people to tell me he was like he directs the Jimmy Kimmel show now. And he tell he the one that told me, dude, watch the first couple of movies. The other ones maybe not so much, but the 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 scared stupid and the goes to jail were pretty were pretty funny. Well, yeah, and it's the same guys that are working on Existo that are working on these films, and so yeah, I think you told me Skiz kind of like. A 
how Genevieve told you, like, these are the guys that did the Ernest movies. And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, because they were like punchlines. And yeah, looking at, you know, Bruce was in Ernest Goes to Jail and, and Ernest Goes to School. And it's just like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is, uh, this is pretty cool. They work, man. They, it's, it's like, you know, the people that make fun of the, um, Jerry Lewis films, not having sat down and watched, you know, the bellboy and uh, ladies man and, and nutty professor, you know, it's just like, okay, yeah. Which way to the front, those kind of movies, like, yeah, you can probably keep those slapstick of another kind. But when it comes to some of those early ones, I mean, these are brilliant things. And, and I totally feel that these earnest films really got short shrift and people really need to go back and look at the, the good ones. I'm thinking maybe a revival, I think along maybe that some earnest and exactly. Yeah, why not? Okay, all right. Sounds yeah. good, like a double bill. That'd be that should be a pretty good one. You know, they all started together in the commercials, and then they did the TV show, and then they did the movies, and then that's actually pretty cool that they just went and said, we're going to do something really, really crazy like this, you know, and we're able to just kind of switch gears like that and, you know, just kind of take their money, I guess. Or how, how did they um, – how did that go about getting financed, that movie? Did they do it or – it wasn't a big backing, and it was a pretty cheap movie. But yeah, it was a lot of people kind of pitching in together to make it happen. So it's mostly that. Set. It's mostly the um, the sewer is most of it. Other than the guy on television, other than that house, I mean, you don't leave the sewer too often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that restaurant scene—that's about it. Yeah, the restaurant, the yes. <laughs> so let's go ahead. We're going to take another break and play an interview with Justin Lloyd, the author of *The Importance of Being Earnest: The Life of Actor Jim Varney*. Stuff that Vern doesn't even know. Wow, that's a title. <laughs> and we'll be back with that right after this. Hey, Vern. Today's your lucky day. We knew you wouldn't want to oversleep, Vern. We only do it once a week, Vern. Me and all the other guys, Vern. We even brought the pies, Vern. Yes, you're in a speed war with a story and a moral and a big chuckle. Hip, trip, double dip, super, super show. You know what I mean? Hey, Vern. We moved your furniture and now we're going to fire up the barbecue, Vern. We owe it all to you, Vern. But now you got to move, Vern. My name is Justin Lloyd. I work at uh, Lexmark here in Lexington and kind of like a, a help desk job, like an IT job. Now, had you written anything before you wrote The Importance of Being Earnest? No. It was one of those things where my mother and my aunt, his two of his older sisters, had talked about writing a book for a long time. And... They got some things put down on paper, and um, but just never really moved forward from there. And I just had made up my mind one day that, that I was going to write a book, no matter what it took. Now, Jim Varney was your uncle. What was it like growing up with him as an uncle? It was pretty crazy. I, I didn't see him a whole lot. I mean, when my early childhood in the 70s, he was out in California. And then he moved to Nashville in the early 80s. Um, so he was at least close. He was home a lot for a lot of holidays, and, and he would still visit quite often. I often ask myself what it would be like, how I would have maybe seen him differently if he wasn't famous, and because he was just kind of unusual and entertaining and everything. And he, he was just always, uh, kind of, it was always standing room only, you know, when he was at our house. 
it, it was just constantly entertaining, teaching you something. And what was it like the first time you ever saw him on television? It was pretty cool. I, I'm trying to remember. I think it was a local commercial here, Convenient Food Mart. It was probably when I was in maybe third grade. I just remember it being, you know, really neat to, to see your uncle on TV and, and pretty far back. I don't remember a lot of specific <laughs> memories, but I just remember it being, you know, pretty neat, pretty neat thing to see. Would you say you got guilted into doing the project or, or that you kind of finally embraced it and said, somebody's got to do this, so I'm going to be the one? Yeah, it was it was kind of a combination of things, I believe, because on one hand, I was his family and I knew certain things about him that really nobody else did. Um, you know, I didn't, of course, know him as well as my, mo- my mom and my aunt. I felt like I would be able to put together the research and put together the hours of the research that needed to be done, um, going through, you know, magazines and newspapers and, and really be able to commit myself to that part of it. And so I, I realized that I was one of maybe the few people that can maybe do such a project because you either had family that was maybe either almost too biased because they, they knew him so well. And then you had people that worked with him that didn't know any of the family stuff. And I don't know how open the family would have been to certain other people that, you know, would have been writing a book. So I was just kind of perfectly in between the two and felt that because I knew him, but in a more limited role than being a sibling that, that, you know, I, I wouldn't have the, the bias and, and so forth. They had, you know, they had certain feelings about him being earnest and feeling like um, that kind of hurt his overall career and certain things like that. And, and other things that I think would have really, I don't know, I wouldn't say hurt the book, but it may would have kind of limited the overall kind of scope of, of things maybe. On YouTube, I was seeing these uh, these videos, so many videos people were putting uh, up there uh, of him, and I even put a couple out there myself. And some of the comments were just so uh, glowing and um, people talking about Ernest being their hero. And that really struck me because, you know, I, I never saw, you know, I don't think a lot of people would see Ernest as your classic hero type, you know, like Superman. And, and that really struck me, and I really felt that, I wanted to put something out there that, that was substantial, that his fans could really sink their teeth into, that they would really enjoy. Because I could see that they were, you know, longing for, for more of him. And, and obviously, there, you know, there, there's no, no more of them out there, unfortunately. So, um, so it was definitely, you know, an adventure and, and something I'm just, um, uh, just very happy that I undertook. Tell me more about your adventure. How did you decide to do your research? Did you start with family first or Hollywood folk, or how did you go about doing that? I was just kind of all over the place. I just sat down and just started, I'm trying to remember, I think I was starting to just go through a lot of magazines and or, or um, magazines, newspapers, everything that I could find online and getting every kind of database. At one point, I took a trip to Nashville at the downtown Nashville library and was able to pull up some old articles from the, uh, the Nashville banner and the, the Tennessean. And that was a lot of good information. One of the craziest bits of uh, luck really was an online newspaper. There was a comment left by somebody that um, ended up being an old friend and girlfriend of his named Julianne Pogue. She got me in touch with Jim's friend and former manager named, his name is Joe Lyles. 
And this was somebody I knew of that no, hardly anybody else would have known of. And I knew him from my mom and my aunt. He was kind of a family friend as well. Uh, but he had moved to California and he was very much kind of off the grid. And I would have never been able to get in touch with him. I would just never been able to find him uh, without speaking to Julianne. And he was a, a an extremely integral part of my book and made it the kind of book I had really hoped to make it. And um, I, I'm just very in, indebted uh, to him. I, I imagine myself almost like an investigator, and you're you're just going through every possible lead, and some of those little leads would just open up the door to something that was really uh, substantial. So I just was almost every day for probably six years, I was working on this thing out of my mind at some point sometimes. I mean, I really, I, I just really was so super focused on it that it just became, you know, almost an obsession, I would say. I imagine, yeah. I mean, it could can be easy to go down through different rabbit holes and just, I had never known until reading your book that there was a Johnny Cash connection with uh, Jim Varney. And I didn't know to the extent of that connection myself until I really was talking to Joe Lyles. And, and Joe was able to tell me in depth of all these little stories that I kind of knew about from my mom and my aunt that, that they only heard bits and pieces of. And I just knew these little bits of it for all these years. And he was able to tie all this together, you know, how they got to California and what brought them back and all this. And it was so, it's so nice to hear all, you know, get all that. Yeah. It, it's crazy. how people like Johnny Cash that he knew throughout his life. It was really something. You didn't leave a stone unturned to read about <laughs> yeah. those early performances, you know, yeah. when he was on uh, the Dinah Shore show. And, yeah. and even, I mean, God, I loved Pink Lady when I was growing up. So okay. <laughs> nobody ever writes about Pink Lady. Yeah, yeah. And I think I had a really good editor because I was just gathering all these facts and I didn't want it to read just like as a book of facts. You know, I needed to, you know, tie it together and, and, and make it sound like uh, something that was readable and enjoyable and, and so forth. And I think she did a good job in helping me. And uh, because, yeah, I gather a, a lot of information that can become kind of boring, I guess, at some point. Well, it's just remarkable that he could take a character that was, I mean, he was selling everywhere and selling so many different things. And I don't think a lot of people realize that just how far his reach was. It was, it was kind of crazy because everybody just thought that he was in their, their town and their, their part of the country. And they didn't realize everybody in the country thought this way. I thought my book would be a good kind of uh, research for somebody that was in, in advertising because, you know, what they did had really never been done before. And uh, just from an advertising perspective, I think my book would be a, a pretty interesting read to just find out, you know, how they how they did all that and what their what their thinking was behind, you know, going viral the way they did before that was, you know, ever even a term. It was like lightning in a bottle mm -hmm. and there were so few stations and so his commercials would make such an impact. I mean, you talking about how a station would broadcast when the earnest commercials were showing. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah.
to be able to parlay that into the career that he ended up having and all of those feature films and a television show. I mean, that's just remarkable. There are so few things that really I've ever seen a commercial character like that go into all these things and succeed so much. You know, I could think about like the Geico cavemen where they're on TV for yeah. an episode or two or two and get canceled. Right. But you know, Ernest had such staying power. Yeah. You know, especially those first four movies, I think a lot of people kind of set those apart usually when talking about all of those, really the production value and everything in those was really something. I mean, I think they were really, really good movies. You can look at Ernest too, a little bit differently, I suppose, as, you know, the kind of the movie Ernest compared to, you know, the commercial Ernest, where obviously the movies are, are geared more toward the children. And the commercials had a little wider range and maybe it's uh, humor, I wouldn't say adult humor, but humor that would be more for the wider demographic and so forth. And so, um, and he could maybe be a little more obnoxious in the commercials and so forth. So I know there's um, some people I've become friends with to do a, a podcast, this earnest podcast, and they really delve deep into kind of, you know, these types of things about the commercial earnest and the movie earnest and and it's it the depth they get into makes me feel almost like like I was kind of laxing the night in the book that it put me to shame sometimes I feel like but uh pretty neat now was there any problem with him playing the earnest character so often did he kind of get typecast into that or was it easy for him to break out of that role I think it, for him it was. It was just obviously for other people to see him. I mean, that was that's the thing for other people to see him differently. I think he realized when they did the first, you know, Ernest goes to camp with the Disney that is going national, and that um, that could really seal his fate in in some ways. And it's hard to say how much it really affected, you know, this is one thing you really don't know. I mean, you go back in time and, and if you never made that movie, I don't know how, how, how does, how, how do things change? I mean, because in some ways it opened up the door for other Disney type jobs for him. But then on other aspects, I don't know. It's really tough because, I mean, he still was able to get certain roles, you know, like the Jed Clamp and Beverly Hillbillies and, you know, some other things. You know, he was on some episodes of Roseanne and uh, Toy Story, which I think still came from the Disney connections through Ernest and so forth. So it's tough. I, I, I don't know. And it, and that's the thing I discuss a little bit in my book about it, at some point he wanted to, to break away, but I don't he just kind of kept falling back into it. You know, and that's under, in a, you know, in a way that's, that's understandable. He just sit back and just say, well, he should just stop this and do that. But it, it's another thing to really do that. And he was getting into his late 30s and so forth. And, and then just to try to do something kind of drastic is, um, I don't know, it's easier said than done, I suppose. You know, he definitely had a comfortable existence living in, in uh, just outside of Nashville there. And, and he liked where he lived. And I don't know, I don't know how much he was really willing to try to give up to, to, to try again when he had kind of come up short in, uh, in his first real big attempt, you know, in the, in the late seventies when he was out in California for about five years there. So I don't know, I wish he was around that I could talk to some more about these things. I found myself many times when, you know, wanting the more and more I'd find out about him, the more I'd want to ask him questions. And of course he wasn't around to do that. So what were some of the more surprising things that you found when you're doing your research? 
the things like the Johnny Cash, um, some of the, the, the famous people um, I didn't know, you know, with Freddie Prince, how he, how good of friends he, you know, became with Freddie Prince, and um, um, even Steve Martin, he became got to know pretty well from the Johnny Cash show. Then one of the craziest things too that kind of led me on a whole different path was this: uh, uh, some of the genealogy I, research I did for the Varneys, and to find out I, we, I didn't know that we were so closely uh, related to the Hatfield family, and that was really, really something. And I even put a little bit of a family tree in the book to show that that was really that really got me interested in gene- genealogy as well, and just more about his struggles, you know in California and having respect for what he, he went through his, just his journey and, and, you know, how he was, you know, he came back to Lexington here and was really about ready to give up on acting altogether. And, and until this, this earnest opportunity came about. Well, it seems like through earnest and please don't let me put words in your mouth, but Mm -hmm. it feels like he was able to help other people out rather than just himself when it came to the Ernest character because he had so many actors that I saw yeah. in those films that would come back time and again. Yeah, that and, you know, somebody, um, I, and I forget who, spoke at his um, memorial service and talked about how so many people in other uh, parts of the movie business, um, you know, it's, whether set designers, stunt people, and how how much work that he had he had been able to offer them through his career, and, and how many people owed you know owed their careers to him, and you know they really did a lot there for the movie industry in Nashville, and I, I'm sure a lot, you know a lot of actors uh, um, got their start in a lot of these Ernest movies. And was there ever any problem as far as the Ernest character kind of being like this? I don't know. He, he was, for lack of a better term, very earnest. But at the same time, he he could have been considered like a quote unquote dumb hick. Did anybody give him shit for that kind of thing? That he's making fun of people. That he's making fun of people. Appalachian type people. You're saying is that right? Right. Were, were there any people who are just like hillbilly rights? You know, this is unfair. How dare he make his living off of making fun of us? You know, I don't think so, because in so many ways, he was one of them, you know, and in being from Kentucky and, 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 and so forth. And because even people, most people, I think, either know he's from Kentucky or they think he might be from Nashville, which is still the South. And then not that I ever had, had heard of him. That's a very good question, because I know I'd, I'd, I'd thought the same thing. That, and I'm sure... Certain people probably felt that way, and but I've never heard of him, you know, getting any flack for it. But but I'm sure some some did that he's just making fun of the Southerners and and um, you know the, and some of the stereotypical behavior and so forth. But I guess you could say that he was still just a beloved character. I guess like you know Ernest T. Bass or you know other types like that. that and then of course, like I said. Finding out that he's so related, so close related to the Hatfields, I and mean, he was <laughs> definitely more of a, an Appalachian person than even he realized. Maybe so. Did you manage to reach your goal when it came to what you wanted to do? Were your your, your family were they happy, and were you happy with the book when it came out? Yeah, I was. I mean, I think I, you know I, I read through it now occasionally, and I, I you know I, I think I could have done better, but I mean. 
on certain things. I just aren't, that's mostly just in the writing, I suppose. But yeah, I feel like I was able to really find out as much as I could have dreamed to and really provide um, a story that I, I'd hoped he would have been happy with and proud of and, and present him a, in a way that it was as uh, close to who he was, you know, as I could. That was just, I thought, fair and, and, you know, not always everything was, you know, glowing and everything. I mean, I talked about some of the struggles and some of his... His foibles, maybe? Yes, I suppose, right. It was kind of easy for me not to be really biased because I wasn't as close as some of these people. So I could almost sit back as as I was some kind of just regular reporter in certain instances is writing about these things. Um, I felt like, like I said, that gave me an, an advantage and hopefully the book was um, uh, was better off um, you know, for that. What has been the response to the book? It's been mostly positive. A lot of that I take is that he was so beloved and I don't, I don't look at any positive review on Amazon and think that I'm some great writer. I think m- more of that is reflected in the fact that he was just a beloved uh, person and that I think I, uh, I, and for the most part, I satisfied a lot of their curiosity uh, about who he was and um, they were able to, f- to find out a lot of the things that they wondered about him. Maybe that makes me happy that, that probably really aimed it for the earnest fans probably more than anybody I would say. But I mean, of course it goes over his entire life. And I mean, I would hope that any fan of Jim Varney, no matter what you were a fan of in his career, that you would you'd be satisfied, you know, when you read the book. But I, I, obviously, I do realize that so many of his fans are, are fans of our character. So I really did everything I could to uh, to research um, that part of his life and, and just how this came to be, and and everything that made Ernest as, as special a character and uh, as enduring a character as he was. Yeah, after a while, he pretty much retired from live action and just strictly was doing voice work. Was that due to his health? I don't believe so. I don't know if it's just more about those roles are being offered. And I don't know either, you know, how lucrative they may have been and, and you know, how it really compared to a normal uh, acting role. Uh, for the most part, I know he, you know, he did have to do traveling. Of course, like Toy Story, he did have to travel out to California when he did the the voice work. Yeah, I'm not really sure why he was, and I don't know, that, like I said, that he was just getting so popular with that. And that was a way, I suppose, when you're typecast, that you can, that's one way you can keep going. I mean, I guess one thing that comes to mind is uh, like Mark Hamill, you know, that, gosh, he's had such a huge career. In, in voice work that I don't think he would have been, I don't know if he would have been able to find the same work as, as an actor because of, I, I would think being typecast. I don't know what, what is your favorite role of his? My favorite role would be from the family album. I don't know if you've seen that. Probably the Lloyd world, the meanest man in the world from that. You know, I saw that when it, they actually had it on TV here when I was a kid, I was probably about 12 and that really, all that just kind of blew me away. You know, I'd seen him as Ernest, but seeing him do all these different roles and that, that was really something to see that, wow, what, what, a, what a real immense talent that he was. These are characters he'd been doing for quite a long time. 
early stand-up and so forth. But yeah, he, he was definitely a, a favorite. Well, Justin Lloyd, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate this. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. are back and we are discussing Existo. So we talked a little bit about the festival cut versus the uh, the non-festival cut, or as, as Skiz calls them, the VHS cut versus the DVDR cut. Both of them have a lot of merits. I like both of them, but to your point, Skiz, I kind of wish that somebody would come in and, and make one master version. And, and I think that both of them play really well. I think that the non-festival cut, the DVDR cut, does a, a nice job of world building through that radio broadcast and showing us the kind of flashbacks to Existo getting the shock treatment. Because correct me if I'm wrong, we don't actually see that in the other version, right? No, it's just sort of alluded to, but but vaguely. All told, there's seven minutes worth of difference. I would say most of that is the beginning. I, I was trying to line them up to play them side by side last night, and my uh, VLC player just kept lagging. I think I was doing too much other stuff, but I went through and I would I would kind of check them as we went through and say, I don't know if I remember this, and I would look at the other cut, and sure enough, it would be there. So I kept tr- you know tricking myself, thinking that I was seeing stuff that I hadn't seen before, but really, it seems like the credits and the opening credits seem to be the biggest difference. I watched the VHS cut and then I kind of scanned through the DVD-R cut to see what differences I could notice. And unless there's other scenes that are missing from the DVD-R cut, it's it's pretty much the same movie except for the first seven minutes and the closing credits. So so let me – okay, as somebody coming into this kind of with a fresh a fresh face, not the fans like you two guys are. So I, I saw the one with the flash at the beginning. I thought the the radio broadcast was a good setup, so I kind of knew what was I was getting into there. And then the the scenes of so I had no idea that was now it's all making sense. That was Existo who was getting the shock treatment or whatever that right. was. Yeah. Okay, but then they never do they address that in the movie or v- vaguely. I mean, it, the the story, if I've got it correctly, is that Maxine Existo and R- Rupin were very tight. Rupin sold them out, and okay. Glasscock got his hands on. Glasscock basically Rupin. captures Existo and gives him shock therapy, but he escapes, and he and Maxine go underground for about ten years. In the first cut, they're just arriving at the sewer to to come back to the underground, and in in the second cut, in the the DVD-R cut, they're already back. They're upstairs, you know, taking the bath. That, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Before we get the first swing, the bishop. Yeah, swing the bishop. Okay. I did like the swing the bishop. I'm curious as far as Ruben selling them out and how much of that is Maxine and him having this very public argument to set up that they hate each other versus maybe what really happened. You know, it, it, I'm curious as far as that goes because we do find out at the end of the film that Rupin has been working with them this whole time and this whole idea of 
bringing uh, Glasscock to the sewer and and them turning him into a pig, which is fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that that has all been this kind of master plan. So I'm curious how far back that plan goes and, and when they made that plan together, because it is a nice surprise at the end of the film when he sits up from the back seat and they're all three together. And it feels like, you know, the world is great for about, five seconds before you see the the flaming frogs yeah okay so so if i could interject here again so this was really weird is that i i keep getting packages from my my uh hall neighbor so i've got like three packages in the hall so i the, the delivery guy came like right so it's like right when they were in the car right and then right when existo woke he, he he's in the back seat right or is it no, the other It's Rupin in the back okay, seat. But, yep. but when it starts out, he's asleep. Existo's asleep in the front seat, right? Right. Yeah. He And then something wait, like that's literally when I had to get up and go to the door. So I missed something. Like, what was the reveal there? That was like the. There's two reveals. One is that, you yeah. know, they're on the outskirts of town and Rupin with, is with them. And then the next reveal is that the road is blocked by burning frogs. Yes. What? Okay. So I didn't. There was nothing. There was no mention of frogs before that, or was I? Earlier, I think it's one of Glasscock's broadcasts. He says something about burning frogs on the outskirts of town. Outskirts. Oh, okay. And one of the artists actually says, "Did he just say burning frogs?" And and she gets shushed. And I think that was like the script's way of drawing attention to the burning frogs, so it'll make okay. sense on the in the film. If people see that and they don't remember, I can completely understand because it is just, it's not a throwaway line, but it is something that if you're not like really paying, it, it, it took me until at least the second time until I was like, oh, there's where the line was. I was okay with just burning frogs on the outskirts of, of town without remembering the line the first time. Yeah, it was, was just a perfectly normal ending for you. That was fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and then so with Ruben being there, then they were saying, what, those guys are all kind of working together well, that's, anyway? That's what I think. It's okay. funny because I hadn't thought of how you just described it, Mike. I hadn't thought that this was like a setup all along. I kind of figured Ruben did sell them out and he was working with Glasscock and then maybe he's – finally felt guilt and he's come back to the underground uh, and, and it could just be that he's always he always wants to be on whichever side is winning so you know maybe that's how he, he makes up his mind but you know the the last we see him is in the sewer as maxine and Existo are leaving and they and he and Existo share that look and then in the next shot he has apparently left with them and i was thinking okay so between those two scenes he had a you know a change of change of heart I can see both of them being right. So I'm not going to say that my interpretation is the only one that makes sense. So I can definitely see where he is this, you know, I described him before as a brown noser and that he, it would make sense for him to always want to be on that winning side. At the same time, I'm like, well, was he the one that kind of manipulated Glasscock into doing this whole prodigal son thing and, you know, allowing for the finale to take place or not? And I, I think both of them can coexist. I think both of them seem to be, so you're okay by me, Skiz. All right. Okay, that's, that's all good to me. Um, I'll take your word for it. Since Existo came out, Bruce Arnston has continued to work with the the woman that plays uh, Penelope, Jenny Littleton, and they're doing an act called Doyle and Debbie, which, as far as I remember, has been on uh, both the older incarnation of Conan O'Brien and the current incarnation of Conan O'Brien's show, which is what just called Conan now. People might 
know their act, but you've actually seen it. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, they do it. Uh, actually, I don't know if they do it every Tuesday at this old roadhouse on the outskirts of Nashville. I, I've seen it twice, both times at this old roadhouse, but I know that they were also doing it in other cities and that they've now franchised it out to other actors to play the, the roles of Doyle and Debbie. But it is an amazing show. Like it's like dinner theater, except you're going to a roadhouse, and and the show you're going to see is this sort of washed up legendary country duo, who have fallen so far that they're now playing at these roadhouses on the outskirts of town, and it just happens to be on the anniversary of Doyle's father's death, I think, and what unplays throughout the show, like the second time I saw the film, already knowing what the show was about. I still felt like what I was seeing, it was the first time it had ever happened. And of course it's actually like the thousandth time it's happened. <laughs> you know, they, they pull it off so well and they, they make it seem so spontaneous, but it is really just one of the funniest live shows I've ever seen. The, the song lyrics are hysterical. The story that's woven through it, the whole history of Doyle and Debbie. I mean, he, at some point he points out that, you know, I'm Doyle and, you know, this is my third Debbie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's I can't even describe it. It's one of those shows that you, you just have to go and see it because it, it's like Existo. Every other line will have you laughing out loud. Yeah, I, I don't know why I missed them when they were in Ann Arbor a few years ago. I still kind of kick myself for that. I did help fund the uh, Kickstarter, so hopefully a uh, Doyle and Debbie movie will be coming along pretty soon. Yeah, I think that's probably uh, what we're going to – in hopes of an Existo sequel, I think the closest thing we're going to get is a Doyle and Debbie movie, which I cannot <laughs> wait to see. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. I wonder where you were going. dream about this place tell me there is no band and yet we hear a band diane camilla diane the car is waiting this is the girl get out of the car I mean, I just came here from Deep River, Ontario, and now I'm in this dream place. Someone is in trouble. Something bad is happening. Could be someone's missing, maybe. That's what I'm thinking. Silencio. Silencio. That's right. Meet us at the Winkies, where we will be discussing Mulholland Drive. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Skiz and Scott. So, Scott, what have you been up to lately, uh, Mr. Expatriate? Uh, well, uh, over here in the UK, um, I actually, so if this is running in uh, November, I actually should have a story on Vanity Fair this week going up this week, which is October the 9th or so. Uh, it's about the first, the original October surprise that happened back in 1964. So that should be out 
this week, uh, theoretically. And um, uh, other stuff, I'm working on a feature-length documentary, my first feature-length documentary, about um, a spy for the Stasi, which used to be the East German police, a guy who defected and came to the States, and the CIA put him through school, and then he became an investment banker. So literally within five years, he went from being in the secret police to working on Wall Street. I was very surprised to see that you're working with Vanity Fair. I watched one of your videos without knowing that you had created it. And then when I found out, I was like, oh, hey, I know that guy. I already had shared it on Facebook and everything. And I was just like, this is amazing. And then when I realized that I knew the author, I was like, oh, I felt even better uh, about it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that, that was the AIDS one. The um, Yeah, that one was really weird. And that, that thing went so viral. I then tried to submit it to festivals and everybody was like, no, we've already seen it. You know, it was just like it literally every festival I submitted to that too, even with Vandy Fair's backing, it was, they were like, no. So, I mean, which fair enough, you know, people had seen it already, so – I hear that you're doing a podcast as well. Yeah, I'm doing a uh, presidential podcast. I kind of had to take the back seat while working on this other story. But yeah, it's called This is the President. And I kind of take I take uh, presidential phone calls and just kind of talk about them, you know, find some of the good ones, find some of the gems, talk about the history that was going on at the time. Um, the last couple podcasts, I had a friend, Harmon Leon, who was here for the Fringe Festival. So we did it together. And that's a format that's working pretty well. So hopefully I'll do a few more of those. I keep them all pretty short because they are presidential phone calls. So they're about 10 minutes long and we just kind of get into it, play the interesting parts, talk about the history and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's over on iTunes. It's called This is the President. So how far back do you go with that? Are you going all the way back to like, you know, uh, Cleveland or uh, Johnson or, or what? Well, the start, I, I've actually found there's some not phone calls, but press room conferences of FDR. So that's as far as the recordings go back. Um, the new thing I found is I just located a trove of um, tapes from Reagan, which people didn't think that the, the presidents were recording, but they were to record certain phone calls, and they were buried in the archives. And that's kind of how I found the the the, aid, the stuff for the AIDS press conference, you know. But I found a bunch of uh, ones from Reagan, and one was in particular was pretty interesting. I just I read the uh, I read the description. I was like, oh, I've got to get this tape, and it just says President talks to kidnapper, and I was like, oh my god, I've got to. I was so excited when I ordered it, but basically what had happened was some guy had stormed the um, the golf course in Augusta while the president was playing golf there, and then took hostages and demanded to talk to the president, and then they brought you know a mobile phone out to the president, and then he'd call. The, the kidnapper, and then every time the president would try to call, the kidnapper would just hang up on him. So, so, so the whole phone call is just a pres of Reagan going, this is the president, I hear you want to talk to me. But, the, but it's, it's an interesting story, so I've got, that's the latest, one of the latest ones I have up there on the uh, podcast. So how about you, Skiz? What are you doing when you're not swinging the bishop? When am I not swinging the bishop? <laughs> exactly. uh, I'm uh, trying to finish up the, what would have been my first feature-length documentary, but it's taken so long to make that it'll probably end up being my third feature-length documentary. <laughs> uh, Ice Pick to the Moon, it's about Reverend Fred Lane. I've been working on it since 1999. I'm almost done editing, so I'm hoping next year that I'll have that on the festival circuit. Just don't uh, give it to Vanity Fair and have them show it first. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep it away. <laughs> and where can people go to keep up with these skiz? Uh, I got a website. It's www.skiz. That's S-K-I-Z-Z dot net. And, uh, and that page has links to pages for my films and my bands and my schedule and everything. 
Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You can also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, or to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. So every donation, every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world and keep us safe from burning frogs. Fucking A. Fucking A. Fucking A. Fucking A. Thoughts are oily. Slick advancement for the coming nightmare. They leave me shaking, they sucker punch me, then they slip away. My clammy sheets reflect a random flash of lightning. Then the searchlight, then the spotlight, then the flashlight in the face. <laughs> Fucking ass. crumb of justice and I'm giddy for that mocking tick tick ticking of the endless final round you fucking A fucking A fucking A fuck the jaws of life have fried my mangled coffin open come see the bubbling edges of my rancid seeping residue come let your ass off as i stagger past the exit while tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its many face fucking me Fuck you, man. Fuck
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Oh, I wish I could take you intravenously, babe.